Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Wish, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I once chased a villainous rat through the gigantic cogs of Big Ben, I am not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a little lost alien running around, causing chaos, and generally vibing out to Elvis Records as we watch through 62 films and counting. Yes people, we are on to 62 films now with the release of Wish. I've had to update that number in the intro. I'm joined by a professor who may or may not be an evil genius accused of illegal genetic experimentation. Thankfully, his experiments are only theoretical and completely within legal boundaries. Oh, Hang on, wait, sorry, I think I've got my notes mixed up here. Uh, the notes I've got are for Dr. Jumba Jukiba? That's... Oh, oh, here we go, here we go. Okay, obviously I mean Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, we finally made it. We're at Lilo and Stitch at long, long last. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's great to be here. We finally made it. You've watched it. I can tell from the general vibe that you like it. There was a lot of <laughs> pressure on you to like it. If you didn't yeah. like it, the people would be extremely upset. Yeah, the pressure for this one has been unreal. This is a big deal. We've waited a long time for this. From our very first guest, Clarice Lockery, way back when we did Alice in Wonderland, and we were asking everybody who came on the show... What are the Disney movies you liked? So many people said Lilo and Stitch, and I was not allowed to watch it until we reached it in the podcast. I've been hearing for so long about how wonderful this film is, how it's everybody's favourite. We went to Disneyland Paris and there was just Stitch stuff everywhere, and I was like, that's great, I guess, for everybody who loves this movie. And now I'm in the club, and I cannot wait to discuss it. But first... Do you know what's weird? I didn't even know until this point that we have a Disneyversity phone line and there's this little answering machine light on the phone line that is just beeping at me. So I'm just going to I'm just going to pick up and hello. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. 626 is not available. At the tone, please record your message. Beecher Malaquista. Ben, it's Helen here. I'm sorry for my language, but I'm just so excited that you've gotten to the best of the modern Disney movies. It is the best. It is the greatest. It is the funniest. It is the weirdest. It has the most Elvis of any movie, including Elvis movies. I love it so much. You're going to have such a good time. Oh, Hannah, my friend. Hello, Ben, and welcome to the Hawaiian roller coaster ride. Please keep your hands and feet within the carriage at all times. Ben, I'm so excited that you are watching this film for the first time. So much to love. Stitch is my feral little twin flame. He reminds me of my cat sometimes at his most disgusting and funny. 
the monster design is just fantastic the story is beautiful the watercolor backgrounds are stunning i love that it shares a location with jurassic park and raiders of the lost ark it's got everything have the time of your life watching it can't wait to uh hear the debrief hey this is mike randa i just want to congratulate ben travis on finally seeing lilo and stitch i mean big day big day for all of us but yeah i just wanted to say that i loved lilo and stitch because it's so specific and funny and Lilo is a wonderful protagonist that like takes pictures of people's butts and feels really specific and like a character that I loved and wanted to follow and that was flawed and is fighting people. Um, Yet it's also so grounded, like the sister screaming into the pillow is like a moment. It just, it really balances this really incredible high science fiction stuff with a really wonderful grounded character story with real stakes like Lilo's sister might lose custody and she might become an orphan like that's those are real stakes uh, in addition to the huge kind of end of the world stakes with Stitch also Stitch is cute as hell uh, <laughs> and all the characters like Chris Sanders has such a wonderful drawing style it's so wonderful to see that done in 2D animation and and see it's just as appealing as Disney's other stuff, but it felt fresh and new. And this, it's full of Elvis songs. Like, I don't know. What more could you want? Ben, congratulations, my man. You're really in for a treat. If you don't like it, I'll never f***ing forgive you. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But uh, hope you had a blast. And uh, I'm just so glad this day has finally come. Hi, Ben. It's Clarice. Congratulations on watching the greatest Disney movie ever made. Technically, I guess I was kind of too old to like this movie when it came out, but I think his little speech on the beach at the end where he says that the family is a little broken but still good, I just think that's some of the most beautiful dialogue just ever, that's just written, ever! I know it's dramatic to say that, but it moves me so much every single time I watch it, and um, I freaking love Lilo and Stitch. Hi. That's me, Stitch. I want to say thank you, Ben, for watching my movie, Disney Roasted Podcast, is niche and it is nerdy, but still good. Yeah, still good. Well, that is just absolutely lovely to hear from so many Disneyversity alumni. That's wonderful. But enough with the past. We have a new guest ready to join us in these halls of moderate learning. She's an author, a TV writer, a former journalist, sometime podcaster. She's she's published three novels in 2023 alone, including her original slasher, The Graveyard Shift, and Marvel novel Mockingbird Strikeout. And she is literally beaming in from the future on the other side of the world where it is an entirely different day to the one Sam and I are in at the moment. So an absolutely huge welcome to Maria Lewis. Oh, Hannah. Means family. No one lets Blair behind and I'm podcasting from the future, I believe is the traditional translation. So, (laughs) Yeah, how is the future? How are things in tomorrow? You're in Tomorrowland. Mate, it's hot. I don't love it. Uh, I'm not sure. Tomorrowland was more sleek and chic than the heat of the Australian summer and or future. But, um, you know, it is what it is. Probably very topical, actually, for Lilo and Stitch. One of my favourite, 
films of all time, period. Amazing. That is what we like to hear. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll get talking about some Disney stuff in a minute, but three books in 2023, (laughs) that is absolutely bonkers uh, how have you managed that that's incredible well the key is to grow up very poor and then always feel um inadequate economically and socially no honestly it's just the pandemic like I think a lot of people you know plenty of novelists and you guys work in publishing and understand like lots of novels that were due to come out you know 2020 2021 even 2022 got pushed because of all the issues with pandemic publications printing press stuff like that shipping even so it sounds really impressive but um it's honestly just there's there's been a few books waiting to get off the rank so just um yeah a weird year that they all come out at the same time and it's an amazing array like i really need to get on the graveyard shift because (laughs) i love a slasher i love a horror movie we don't tend to talk about that too much on disneyversity (laughs) these are different worlds but yeah that is completely my vibe i don't know princess and the frog is close like i was just thinking about (laughs) dr facilier last night and i'm like i think that's as close as you get to some high concept disney horror outside of fantasia stitch wields a chainsaw in this movie so <laughs> i've got to go my dog's got a chainsaw it's just like i mean we'll get into it obviously but there's just so many wonderful things about this movie but it's like there's not a line of wasted dialogue and it's a pretty dialogue light film you know what i mean like it's not something where it's like stitch has a bunch of zingers he's largely non-verbal but every single line in the film every scripted line that makes it to the final cut is either hilarious or critically important to the story. And I'm just like, absolutely no fat, no waste, an hour and 20 minutes. They're in, they're out. They're like setting the agenda and creating a legacy of one of the weirdest yet most culty, beloved Disney films. Yeah, this is the era that we're in at the moment. These wilderness years, we've had already some ups and downs. Dinosaur was absolutely a down. We've had some ups with Emperor's New Groove with so much fun. And Atlantis, The Lost Empire had loads of interesting things going on. There are some real gems in this era and they're all weird for Disney movies, including Lilo and Stitch is massively atypical for me. I can't wait to get into that. Yeah, they're really throwing shit at the wall and it's really fascinating because it's like, you know... Again, we'll get into it, blah, blah, blah. But Chris Sanders, the writer, director, you know, artist, voice of Stitch and everything, came from that school of Ron Clements and John Musker, who are Disney icons and legends, who basically sort of pioneered that wave of the Disney resurgence. But they really, like, got their footing in a bunch of weird Disney stuff, like The Rescuers Down Under, weird film, weird genre, like weird little pivot, like not necessarily, there's people who love it obviously, but it's not something where people are like, oh yeah, that's my jam. But there is this legacy of people who came off the back of that film, who went on to do really interesting Disney stuff. And even Ron and John, like, you know, Atlantis is their baby. It's um, really fascinating to see, like, they're taking so many people who came up through the traditional Disney training route, the, you know, graduation out of Cal Arts and right into the animation studios. And then just being like, I don't know, man, like, let him cook. <laughs> you do this movie about a llama and then off you go. 
And you are in good company here. You are in, like, the Marahute fan club for Rescuers Down Under. Uh, what does that film mean to you as an Australian? Please never listen to the episode that we did on that, and we did so many terrible Australian accents. Let me tell you, the footprint it has in this country is non-existent. Really? I'd be surprised if you met somebody who knew what that film was. It was <laughs> not reflective of us or made by us. In a way, like... You know, not dissimilar to something like Lilo and Stitch, which, you know, I'm a Pacifica woman. So I remember watching Lilo and Stitch and feeling like this was one of the first times a version of myself was represented as she's um, beating the raggedy redhead uh, at the dance recital. Right. (laughs) But when you actually like peek behind the curtain, there are not many, if any, Pacifica people involved in this film. It doesn't get to the Oceana story trust, like something with Moana and even Princess and the Frog and all the different versions where they actually start making genuine inroads and institutional attempts to include the people stories are about not saying that rescue is down under is the representation I'm looking for but it's just not a film that I ever hear mentioned and it's not a film that was popular here you know we have this big event in Australia called Hello Stream every year which is basically a Disney themed Halloween party that Disney throws and it's massive. They do this whole elaborate thing with the, you know, all these in-house decorations and the point of the party or not the point, but like the intention is everybody dresses up as different Disney characters. And it's really like a who's who of Australian celebrities. It's like we have famous drag Queens that we have and, you know, social media stars and stuff like that. And what's been fascinating watching what people dress as at that party, especially over the past few years, once we've come out of the pandemic is you can get a good gauge of like what characters and what Disney films are popular amongst cool people (laughs) based on who's dressing up as what. And you always see (laughs) quite a few Emperor's New Groove people. Like, Mm, you know what I mean? There's always, yeah, always, always. Yzma, great costume. Great costume. And it's like, it's also very fun and camp and like the girlies who get it, get it. I've never in my life of years doing the pop culture convention circuit and going to events like this ever seen a rescuers down under (laughs) or heard anybody mention it colloquially is from the mouth of Ron Clements and John Musker themselves when I interviewed them during the making of Moana. So it's like, it's just not something that has much of a pop cultural footprint. I don't know what it's like over your way. I don't know if people are riding hard for the rescuers. Yeah, not massively here either. I think the select people who had it on video when they were growing up or happened to see it in the cinema, but that is a small pool in that Disney Renaissance era where all the films around it are absolutely gigantic. Rescue is Down Under, it's it's a select favourite for a few, but there's so many things I want to touch on there. We'll get back to Lilo and Stitch, but before then, what are the Disney films that you grew up on? Which are the ones that you had as a kid, that you saw as a kid in the cinema, or that you had on VHS growing up? Well, the first movie I ever saw theatrically in a cinema was Beauty and the Beast. And I remember being really, I was like, this is a bit slow, like, let's wrap it up. But I remember (laughs) being really into the scene where she nearly gets eaten by wolves because I grew up in a part of New Zealand that's quite rural and has, uh, you know, lots of mountains and like there were wild dog attacks all the time. We don't have wolves in New Zealand, but the idea of like a wolf attack in the snow felt very relatable and understandable to my tiny little brain at the age of, you know, four or whatever. But I got really lucky because the wave of Disney that I was sort of like born into, right, it was obviously 
Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, they were all the films that were like really big and significant, but the ones that really connected to me were sort of part of that Renaissance era. So it was Hunchback of Notre Dame. Wow, it was Pocahontas. Yes. Lion King was pretty big. I remember I had these two soft toys, uh, a Simba and a Nala, and they had uh, magnets on the noses so they could kiss, which like, nice. you know, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore non-consensual kissing between two soft toys, <laughs> but like live, laugh, love. But it was Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame specifically were the two for me that I was really into. And I think as well, both of those films, again, like that your environment plays into it and growing up as a Pacifica woman, you're looking for characters that kind of look like you or feel closer to you, right? And Pocahontas and Esmeralda were both women of colour and felt more grown up, I guess, than some of the other female Disney heroines. And like the romantic story was a big part of it. And there was just, it felt a little bit more tween as opposed than like genuinely kiddie. And obviously there's many a problem with those films when you grow up and you recontextualize them as adults and you're like, oh my God, Frollo has an entire rape ballad in the middle of the song, like in Miller's film. You're like, this is, this shit is crazy. But those were the ones that mattered to me. I still have on my desk behind me, I have the McDonald's Hunchback of Notre Dame toys that were part of the Happy Meal. And what they were were little cathedrals. Each one was a different cathedral. And you look inside through a stained glass window, i.e. plastic, color plastic, but whatever. (laughs) And you look in through the stained glass window and you can see a different character from the film and they spin So in the case of Esmeralda, she dances, Phoebus, you know, the whole thing. So those are movies that have really, really stuck with me for lots of reasons. And Pocahontas especially, like, that was my jam. I really was in love with that film. And then when Terrence Malick's The New World came out many a year later, and, you know, you grow up, you're older, you understand, like, why the representation and there was absolutely batshit. The song Savages is just one of the craziest things to ever exist in a film. But you have the Christian Bale voicing a character in Pocahontas, the animated film, but then also being in Pocahontas live action in in the Terrence Malick movie, like just weird little connections like that, that I'd always found really fascinating. But, you know, as an adult, Disney has always and still continue to be a really significant part of my life. Princess and the Frog and Moana specifically are two films that, just really important to me as a grown woman in a way that I'm sure they would have been super important to me as a kid. But as important as things like Lilo and Stitch, Pocahontas, Hunchback and Notre Dame were to me as a child, that's how important Princess and the Frog and Moana and stuff like that to me is now as an adult. Yeah, let's pick up on that because the ones that you watch as an adult that still mean something to you, these films are incredibly resonant. Of course, they mean a lot to kids, but they can mean a lot to you as adults as well. And you understand the stories they're telling in a different way. So yeah, Moana and Princess and the Frog, they're the big ones for you these days. Yeah, I think Princess, I mean, Moana culturally, obviously, but Moana also, I think, is really significant in the history of Disney because of the turning point it marks culturally. Mm. You know, you look at Ron and John, who I'm just going to call them Ron and John. I don't need to say their first names. (laughs) You've met them. Right. But if you look at something like Aladdin, which they directed, the cultural research for Aladdin was they went to a conference on the Middle East, right? That was as far as it went. You know, there was obviously lots of visual research, but in terms of incorporating people from that culture into the actual production of the film, there was a very large separation between what happened and what ended up appearing on screen and the actual 
development. In the case of Moana, why that film is so significant to Pacifica people and not just like for the fact that we got to see and our children and our nieces and nephews got to see people that looked like them and got to purchase significantly products where they see themselves represented. The dolls have hair that's like us. Their bodies look like us. The impact that can have truly cannot be understated if you've grown up and you have never had access to products where you are represented on them. Like I know it's a commercial machine, but it's also just vital to have dolls that have like thighs and calves and arms and eyes and noses and hair that looks like us. But what Moana did and why it's significant to a lot of Pacifica adults is they established this thing called the Oceanic Story Trust, which was basically a board of people, elders, experts, people across the spectrum of experts and Pacifica culture, whether that was waiata and song, whether that was navigation, whether that was dance. And that board could basically vote on elements of the story as it was being developed. They also worked to have people in-house who were Pacifica working on the film itself. Dave Derrickson's a great example. He was an in-house animator and concept artist at Disney for years. He's Samoan and he got to work on Moana, flew himself back to Samoa on a family holiday to get back in touch with his culture, to research with his family, to look at his grandfather's tapa cloth, which he then works into the film. He's now directing the Moana TV series. So there was this pathway and trajectory for Pacifica people in-house to work on a film that was about us, for us, and not 100% by us, but you know, it is the mechanic of Disney. It's never going to be 100% by us, but by us in a percentage that had never existed before. Obviously, Taika worked on the film, Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, Men in Black, endlessly significant Maori creator for us. But even the voice cast, The Rock is probably the most famous member of it. But, you know, the casting of Moana, like in Lilo and Stitch, Lilo is not a Hawaiian girl that's not a Hawaiian voice actor and Moana it is but also people like Rachel House who's a Maori actor absolute legend Rachel House Hauso is a legend <laughs> a game changer an icon she's the moment she's the movement but it was combining all these different parts of our culture Samoan Tahitian Maori Hawaiian putting it all together and creating a version of our world that to me like was so significant and I know there's lots of criticisms of the film obviously but it's all about the intent and you know like the original concept designs for Maui he had no hair in Polynesian culture your hair is where all your mana is that's where your power is so it was the Oceanic Story Trust who were like yo if you can have this character because obviously they were modeling him on the rock he needs to have hair and he needs to have wild hair because he's supposed to be a demigod. Demigods have power, they have mana. Like just little things like that, that really changed the game. I've worked on projects now for different companies, big, huge companies, big conglomerates on the same scale as Disney that have been set within different versions of Pacifica and the system they have in place for how they go about working on projects set within cultures that they their company is not actually from within is now based on what Disney did with Moana they attempt and invest 
and making sure that there's cultural representation behind the scenes from the very beginning development stages. And I know like Disney changed their process. They obviously did a very similar thing with Raya the Last Dragon and Kanto. There has been a real shift internally in terms of making sure that, you know, beginners you mean to go on and making sure that there is that story authenticity early is is really critically visually story-wise verbally all of those elements so that's you know kind of the film of my lifetime like we have never been put on as big a scale as that before globally as we were with Moana yeah I mean it's an incredible film and I'm fascinated to get to that in the podcast because as you say that infrastructure it's not just the impact of that initial film but the infrastructure that it creates is massively important it sounds like it's very much not the case for Lilo and Stitch. Um, we'll get there shortly. But what, what's your history with Lilo and Stitch? When did you first see this? You are in a wonderful purple Lilo and Stitch t-shirt <laughs> as we record. Seems like this film means a lot to you. When, when did you first see it? I really don't remember, which is why I definitely didn't see it theatrically. But what I was hyper conscious of with Lilo and Stitch was the advertising campaign. They did this really unconventional and for the time quite edgy advertising campaign where they had Stitch basically intrude into Disney classics. It was a lot of television ads and things like that. So you had like the magic carpet ride, like they're singing a whole new world. <laughs> and then Stitch shoots by on his spaceship and like shoots up a bunch of the scenery and stuff like that. They had a whole <laughs> publishing and print campaign where they had scenes from Disney classics and Stitch right. essentially being like the remix, like tearing his way into the <laughs> scene. So it was the advertising I was aware of more than anything because I was in high school then. So this was like, it felt a little bit too young for me to engage with. And it wasn't really until it hit the DVD circuit that I saw it for the first time. I didn't see it theatrically. And I was just immediately in love, like immediately sobbing, crying in love with it because even, you know, just rewatching it, it's not like a film that's not fresh in my memory because it is very rewatchable. I revisit it all the time. But it is really emotional and personal, this idea of found family. And I think that connects for a, a lot of Indigenous people in that the mechanic of colonization is stripped so much from your culture and stripped so many like familial connections and bonds that found family is one of the core sort of tenets of what we've had to create in the modern age. And so the way it, it talked about that almost incidentally, again, because, you know, it wasn't made from within our community. It was something that really, really connected, but it's just, it's just such a beautiful film. Like it's so funny and absolutely weird. Just the craziest batshit, most, you know, odd Disney oddity. <laughs> and especially like, I know you have a whole section on the sequels and the TV series and everything, which leans into the oddness as well. But in the film, it's like a solid 15 minutes before you even get the opening credits. Brave, bold, interesting. <laughs> but that we're yeah. even on Earth. You know, like the alien stuff, yeah. the extraterrestrial stuff is the hardest part of to sell of this movie. It's the weirdest part. And the fact that they are like, no, we're going to start this in the weirdest, hardest part for like 10, 15 minutes. And then we'll get you to the relatable little Earth Girls is really fascinating. But it was the, again, I mentioned like I have to tour on the pop culture convention circle a lot. That was the place where I really understood that Lilo and Stitch had penetrated pop culture in a way that 
not many Disney films do. The way you would see merch at pop culture conventions, and I don't just mean like Disney took a minute to get onto it because it was a hit, but it was like a moderate hit. Whereas it took like almost a decade for there to be Lilo and Stitch merch. People were making that stuff themselves. They were making Lilo and Stitch earrings. They were making Lilo and Stitch shirts. They were doing fan art for it. And now Lilo and Stitch is one of the most recognizable products that Disney has. There's so much merch for it out there. And in part, that's also like the success of the character design through Asian communities as well. Like if you ever go anywhere in Asia, like if you're going to Japan, China, wherever, the amount of stuff that you see (laughs) that's Lilo and Stitch or Lilo and Stitch adjacent is crazy. It's like it was the biggest film ever to come out there. And um, yeah, that's just really, really fascinating stuff. It's the same here because Sam and I went to Disneyland Paris in the summer and yeah, the amount of merch for Lilo and Stitch was insane, but it wasn't just Lilo and Stitch. Sam, who's the red one? Is the red one Leroy? The red one is Leroy. The pink one is Angel. Angel is Stitch's girlfriend. She's from the TV show. Leroy is Stitch's enemy. Leroy is Stitch's warrior, and he is from Leroy and Stitch, the fourth Lilo and Stitch movie. So yeah, they are going deep. They are pulling from the enormous bench they have of uh, tertiary freaks that they produced in the spin-off media. (laughs) And they are recent too. Yeah. All those characters, they're recent characters, you know what I mean? Like, they're not from 2004 to 2005. They're within the last, you know, sort of 10 years of extended Lilo and Stitch branding, which is nuts. Angel has become so core. Like, Angel is, like, on a Minnie Mouse level of penetration in places like the Disney parks. It's crazy. It's nuts that you guys, you know, at Disneyland Paris were like, it's everywhere. Because you would think that... I don't know what's one of the things I love about the Disneylands is that they make each one a little bit specific to whatever the fan base is. So in my mind, I'm like, man, they'd be going hard on all the, you know, Hunchback and Notre Dame, like get a Quasimodo plushie or whatever. (laughs) Get some gargoyle toils. (laughs) Not so much. I think it's starting off very much trying to be that, but then it's just like, look, the people want Stitch, just give the people Stitch. I know you you would expect the French (laughs) to be like, oh, we do not approve of this anarchic creature or whatever. You think that's exactly why they would though they love anarchy over there (laughs) that's true they love revolution absolutely Uh stitches is toppling those disney classics just like we toppled the monarchy back in the day now that we're talking about it i can see it i can see the appeal okay then that is enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin This time we're blasting down from Galactic Federation headquarters and landing in lush Hawaii in 2002's Lilo and Stitch. Okay then Sam, this is a hugely popular favourite, but for anybody who somehow, like me two days ago, has not seen Lilo and Stitch... What is the plot of this movie? What happens in this film? Yeah, I commend you for getting so far into this podcast already if you don't know the plot of the movie, but uh, here it goes. So Stitch is an illegal genetic experiment on the run from the Galactic Federation. And when he crash lands in Hawaii, he's adopted by a lonely girl named Lilo and her beleaguered older sister and guardian Nani. Beset by both social services and intergalactic law enforcement, the three must learn to understand each other and keep their weird little family together. I think that about covers it, right? I wrote this one down because it's kind of 
tricky to summarise in a way, despite being quite simple, but I think that's because the themes that it's playing with are kind of fairly complex and not actually that straightforward and like manifesting in a bunch of different ways. It is a weird and wonderful little story, and it's an original story, which is something that we don't often get from the Disney studio. So it comes up in the credits, there's a weird credit on this, based on an idea by Chris Sanders. Unpack that for us, how does this all begin. So it actually began, and I'm getting a lot of this from this really good oral history that came out on Vulture last year by uh, Bill Jabiri, so please check that out if you would like to read more about Lilo and Stitch. It basically came about in 1997, sort of late Renaissance era, when the animation execs Thomas Schumacher and Peter Schneider decided that what the studio needed was what they called the Dumbo for our generation, i.e. a simple but sweet story that could be told relatively cheaply. So they approached Chris Sanders, who was a story artist who, yeah, I think he was on Beauty and the Beast, he was on The Lion King, he masterminded the Just Can't Wait to Be King sequence in that, and he was co-head of story on Mulan with Dean Dubois, and he pitched Disney a story that he conceived 17 years earlier as a picture book about a little monster who lived in the forest and wanted to find a family of his own. And he basically, he never actually made the picture book, but he recreated it for this pitch. And they went for it, they paired him with Dean Dubois, and there you go. They moved the whole development and production to the new Florida studio, uh, which at this point had done some shorts. It did like the Roger Rabbit shorts. They'd done the bulk of the animation on Mulan, but they'd never developed a film from start to finish in Florida, in Orlando. So that means that the directors were mostly off of the execs' radar. And this is ideal for a team who had seen what was happening to the film that would become The Emperor's New Groove. They were watching this film, Kingdom of the Sun, get like really put through the ringer in terms of how many notes it was getting from the execs and stuff like that. And they were now in a position to kind of develop this movie outside of the ever-lasting gears of, of Michael Eisner and people like that. So they weren't getting constant notes from people who were only tangentially involved in it, and this allowed them to make something extremely out of the box. That is an ideal place to be. We're off in Florida, we're doing our own thing, please leave us alone, we're going to make this wonderful, strange movie. A name comes up there, Dean de Blois. And I know him from the How to Train Your Dragon movies. I actually interviewed him for the Ah. third How to Train Your Dragon film. But at the time, I couldn't talk to him about Lilo and Stitch because I wasn't allowed to watch Lilo and Stitch. So (laughs) how long had he been in Disneyland for? Yeah, he came up with Chris Sanders. And they both did How to Train Your Dragon. They, They both went to DreamWorks to do How to Train Your Dragon. And Toothless looks like stitch right like there seems to be some design principles that have been carried over there and yeah there's the similarities in the story there but i really do think there's continuity in that art style and that's partly because i think chris sanders in particular like dean dubois gets a lot of plaudits he seems to be the guy whose job it was to keep chris sanders in check and sanders was a bit more of like a, a wild and crazy guy like hyperactive imagination and stuff like that but chris sanders in particular seems to have gotten more like direct creative control over this movie than probably any individual director in the history of, of Disney animated features. Like I guess w- Wooly Ritherman, back when he was basically running the animation studio after Walt's death, had quite a lot of influence, but Sanders' style is so singular and Thomas Schumacher, one of the execs in particular, was so adamant that they make this movie look like his art, the art that won them over in that initial storybook pitch. So they had to teach 
all of the artists at the studio to draw like Chris Sanders. And Chris Sanders didn't even know how to teach people to draw like Chris Sanders. So they, the art directors had to make like <laughs> booklets and stuff and pamphlets to like teach people Chris Sanders's art style. Yeah, so he created the characters, he created the story, he drew it, he voices Stitch. I think it was because... They said they didn't want to get a famous actor in just to get them to do mostly goobles and garbles. So Chris Sanday like <laughs> laid down the scratch tracks, as often happens. Today, it would be Ellen Tudyk. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that's a job for life for Chris Sanders. I mean, it helps that he made the movie a hit. But even though he's no longer like directly involved with the production of the films, I don't think he... He definitely didn't direct any of the sequel movies, for example. But he's still Stitch. There's a live-action remake coming up. Word on the street is he is still Stitch. So he's like got a job for life Ooh. there. Just throw it device like this. Can any of us do Stitch? Was that a good Stitch? Was that a bad Stitch? Anyone? Everyone's tried to do Stitch, right? Nah. No? Really? <laughs> I'm not that person pulling out Gollum impressions at the party, you know? Like, that's not my place. I am that person. I am the... It's a masculine disease, generally, of uh, for some reason having to bring out impressions that I have not really practised at any opportunity. I confess that is something that I do suffer from. But we had, we had Clarice on before. She was doing a Stitch impression. It's not just the guys. But when I was a kid, it was like you were cool on the playground if you could do a Stitch impression. It was like a Stitch-off in the playground <laughs> when the this bar. movie came out. That was the, nah, Hey, I didn't say I was cool. I didn't say I won the competition. <laughs> I just participated, potentially in vain. One side of the playground is, you know, it's eight mile and people are trying to freestyle rap. And then the other side of the playground is guys trying to see who does the best Stitch impression. Finally, means no one. That's not good, is it? No one gets left behind. It's too close to Gollum. <laughs> I need to drink some water. Hold on. I'm really worried that you're going to be sick trying to do that. It's, it's stressing me out. I know which side of the playground I would be on <laughs> in that split. I know which side. Both Sam and I are clearly on the Stitch side of the playground. I just went in totally dry that I assumed I could do a Stitch impression. But apparently, it's in my head that it's just something everyone can do, but apparently not. You need a little bit more vocal fry. That's the key. It's just like a huskiness thing, you know? You're going to sound a little bit more like an American podcast. <laughs> That's not good. Do you want to try? Do you want to try Stitch, Ben? Absolutely not. All right, okay. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because I have to ask, before we can get into the film itself, when does it come up that a big part of this film was going to be that it's set in Hawaii? And what did they do? Is there any record of the research that they did do for this? Well, it was going to be set in a Midwestern American forest, basically, is where it initially was. And they decided on Hawaii because, well, initially, Stitch was going to be mainly interacting with forest animals, like in a Bambi kind of setting. And it was Thomas Schumacher's idea that that doesn't make Stitch feel that alien if he's only interacting with animals. It makes him feel more alien if he's interacting with humans. So they wanted to set it somewhere not like metropolitan, but where there are people. And that's why you get this tension in the film between like Stitch wants to destroy a city. That's what he was designed for. But they're not in Honolulu. They're in this uh, village in Kauai. Also, Hawaii, it's like fun. It's colourful. I mean, basically, the story that Chris Sanders says, which is one of the most problematic sounding elements of the film's production was he had like a roadmap of Hawaii by his desk and he looked at it and he was like, yeah, that'd be a great place to, to set it. He picked the names Lilo and Nani from place names on the map. There's something quite callous about that almost. Like, oh, it's just the first two Hawaiian sounding names that he found on this map. You know, I don't hear many people complaining about the validity of those as 
names for Hawaiian girls, but that there's just something quite careless about that, I think. I think a lot of the authentic Hawaiian cultural elements were brought in by some of the voice actors. So the predominant voice actors of Hawaiian descent on this film were Tia Carrera, who played Nani, and Jason Scott Lee, who played David. And they came in and kind of rewrote some of the dialogue to sound more authentically Hawaiian and brought like certain slang and phrases to the roles that weren't in the original script. It was Tia Carrera's suggestion that Nani sing the Aloha Oi song to Lilo as like a kind of almost a goodbye. It was something that her grandmother used to sing to her. And there was also Mark Hoamalu, who was the musician responsible for coordinating like the Hawaiian chorus on the songs, sort of like a Labo M figure in the production of The Lion King. So he brought that like authentic musical flavour as well. So there were a handful of significant Hawaiian voices on the film, albeit in relatively minor positions of creative influence. So it wasn't the Yoshinaik Story Trust, it was more they wrote this story and then the Hawaiian people that they got involved kind of pulled it in a more authentic direction gradually over the course of production, I think. Yeah, there's also a few little Easter eggs sort of like in the backgrounds of scenes. You can see in the girl's bedroom there's a poster of the Duke and then they, at the end in the sort of epilogue, where they're posing around a statue of the Duke. For those who don't know, it's a, a legendary pioneering big wave surfo passed away um jukahana moku who's a hawaiian legend and so just stuff like that where if you if you didn't know you wouldn't pick it up it's not super obvious in the way that the use of elvis is but just like little things even um <laughs> even stuff like the fact that when they go surfing they have two boards so they have a short board and a long board and for the kind of surfing that they're doing like when they switch out to ride a wave which Always makes me chuckle because Lilo and Nani are like on a 20 foot baza. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, if I was child services, I'd be like, get this kid out of here. You're riding a 20 foot barrel <laughs> on pipe and she's just like balancing on the end. That's like actually terrifying. People die like that all the time. But on a larger, a larger wave of that size that you're paddling into specifically, mm you're wanting to use something a bit closer to a longboard because of the design mechanism to be able to get down the lip, right? Whereas the shorter board, it doesn't really matter. So just like tiny little tweaks like that where I'm like, there's definitely somebody Hawaiian involved. You know, even the music, it's like it's all Alan Silverstreet. Like he's the one who gets all the large big music credits and it's really only like the Hawaiian children's choir that sort of gets brought in in bits and pieces. So anytime there was like a little bit of what I thought was authentic Pacifica representation it, it really leapt out yeah I mean I don't want to suggest that the filmmakers were like entirely ignorant of what they were doing like they were very aware that they were non-Hawaiians making a movie about Hawaii and also very aware that there is this long history of movies set in Hawaii but focused on Caucasian characters focused on tourist characters yeah which is also why I find the Elvis inclusion so funny <laughs> right exactly because he is the embodiment of that like Blue Hawaii is the most yeah. iconic example of that so there is that strange juxtaposition because I think this is a movie that's conscious of like the impact of the tourist industry on Hawaii there are criticisms of 
that embedded into it and criticisms of the way that American, in particular, tourists experience Hawaii, like the way that Nani and David are both working these kind of crappy, exploitative jobs in the tourist industry, the way that Lilo collects photos of tourists, almost like flipping the script on them, like, I'm going to take photos of you and stick you up on my wall. I think that's really cool, and and there seems to be... it, It does seem to have something genuine to say about that, And, you know, they did go to Hawaii, they did do research and consultation to the same extent that they would have done in the production of something like Mulan. But, yeah, we're not quite at that Moana level where they are doing that from the ground up from day one. Well, it's also the thing that's really fascinating, too, is you can see a market shift where they're actively trying to start to include more cultures and branch out of stories that were quote-unquote traditional European fairy tales. So Mulan, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Pocahontas kind of being examples of that because all of the three women were women of colour and they are instances in all three of those films of things that are actively quite racist, right? I don't think that was the intention. You don't spend years of your life trying to work on a film that is about a culture while skewering that culture, I feel. I feel like people go in with the best of intentions, but it's just there's a disconnect between how you grew up in different cultures and communities. But that is the thing that's really interesting is unlike those, say those three films specifically, Hunchback, Pocahontas, Mulan, where there are like little, you know, racist or culturally inappropriate things that slip through the cracks. In Lilo and Stitch, like those films that were not made largely by people from those communities, so was Lilo and Stitch, there's nothing that's overtly super racist, if that makes sense. Like there's nothing that really stands out to you in the same way Mushu does in Mulan, right? Like there's stuff like that. And that's kind of what makes it special is that there's nothing that ruins it for you. Yeah, right. There's nothing bad. It's it's not perfect, but there's nothing like really overtly disturbingly right. bad about it. Like because for the, as much as you have the beauty of something like Colors of the Wind sequence in Pocahontas, sharp juxtaposition to the Savage's soul. You can't appreciate one without there being this like little shadow of the other. And in Lilo and Stitch, I don't really feel like, for me anyway, personally, I'm not native Hawaiian, I'm, you know, I'm a Maori, but maybe they feel different about it. But just overtly on a surface level watching it, there's nothing that immediately ruins my viewing experience going forward, which is such a low bar. But still, you know, like Aladdin is filled with some tough stuff as well. Like anytime Mm. they're dipping into other cultures, it's tough, you know, up until a certain point. Well... Thankfully, nothing ruins this film. Maybe we're about to ruin this film by the amount that we're about to talk about it. I think we're finally ready. Shall we get into talking about Lilo and Stitch? Yes, please. Let's do it. Yeah, yes, please. That was all right. Okay, <laughs> okay you're gonna, you've got like another hour or so to work on all that. All right, so. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I need to stop. I'm an addict. I need to stop. As you set up them, Maria... This film surprised me in so many ways because I didn't quite know what to expect going in. And the thing I did not expect was that the opening 10 minutes of this film weren't going to be in Hawaii. We weren't going to see Lilo. We were in outer space with aliens and mutants and genetic experimentations and starship chases. We've just come off the back of Atlantis, which was the first real kind of sci-fi movie in the Disney canon. And watching Lilo and Stitch straight afterwards is like, oh, it makes sense that this is the mode that Disney was in before it becomes a lovely family story 
this is a weird sci-fi movie. I don't know why I didn't expect that, but it caught me off guard. It's really interesting because it feels like their way to show rather than tell this isn't your mum and dad's Disney. <laughs> That's kind of how it feels to me. It's like, buckle up, losers, we're going to space. And that's what all of those like ads were about as well that you talked about. It's, it's all about this isn't your mum and dad's Disney. But for me, when I was a kid, that really worked. In the same way that like Shrek did, because it was overtly skewering these fairy tales. And this is poor Shrek. This is firmly poor Shrek. Like, that advertising campaign, that is poor Shrek. They know what is now bringing people in, and it's attacking Disney. It's anti-Disney. So they had Stitch. And when I was a kid, I was obsessed with this guy. I was like, who is he? Because they insert him into the Disney world. It, in a way, it feels like he's been there all along. Like he's just automatically a main Disney character because of these commercials where he's interacting with all of those main Disney characters. And that's obviously what he's become. So it is, especially in the context of seeing those commercials, really exciting that we open in Stitch's world and build the Stitch and we get a sense of Stitch. Because I think Lilo... I don't know, is this controversial? I think Lilo is the protagonist of the movie. I know it's a two-hander, but generally over the course of the film, I'm more invested in her emotional arc. Like, her and, and Nani. Like That's why I included Nani in my plot synopsis, because I don't think you even have to, necessarily. But for me, it's that relationship that's the heart of it. You have to. Like, it's Lilo and Stitch not Lilo and Nani and Stitch. Yeah. Because that would be a terrible title. Lilo and Stitch is like punchy <laughs> and to the point, but really it's a threefer. You know, the, yeah, the yeah. three of them are your key story points. They're the drivers of narrative. It's their struggles and the things that they are pushing against that are the catalyst for the story. So it hinges yeah. as much on Lilo and Lilo and Stitch's relationship as it does Lilo and Nani and Nani and Lilo. And even like, you know, they spend quite a lot of time on the possibility of and the future of Nani and David, which I think is really important because they're building up this idea of you have all of these separate pieces and by the end of the film you have this found family that is comprised of all these like little broken toys, right, which includes some of the characters we meet in this opening sequence. So I think it's it's really fascinating that there's not very many Disney films or films period where there isn't necessarily one clear protagonist or one clear antagonist even. There's like four or five protagonists and four or five antagonists, which I, you know, pays homage, I guess, to the unconventional marketing campaign and the unconventional positioning of the story in the Disney canon. Yeah, so that's why it's interesting that, like, you know, they had to decide, they had to choose one of the two to start us with and they chose Stitch. Uh, again, there's a version of this movie that you can imagine where we spend the first act with Lilo and then Stitch arrives and we don't necessarily get all of that backstory. But in giving it that backstory to like where Stitch has come from, we also get backstory for like Jumba, Pleakley and Gantu. Uh, I think the movie could do with more Gantu. There's a deleted scene from about halfway through the movie, only like 30 seconds long, where Gantu just would get a little bit more time with him on his own and would get to understand like his motivations in the final act a bit more so it doesn't just come out of nowhere when he suddenly becomes the main antagonist. I think definitely the time that we spend being introduced to Jumba and Pleakley in this opening is really significant in setting those characters up because they, for me, are... 
I don't want to say the MVPs because Lilo and Stitch and Nana are absolutely fantastic, <laughs> exquisite characters. But I love Jumbo and Pleakley. I love Jumbo and Pleakley and the rest of the franchise. I really want to talk about Jumbo and Pleakley as we go on. We'll get there. We'll get to them. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's a great choice to start with Stitch and not in Hawaii with Lilo, I think, because this world does take some explanation. If Jumbo and Pleakley just turn up hunting for Stitch, then we don't feel for them in the same way that I think we ultimately do because they set up this whole intergalactic ecosystem and those characters' positions in it. And Stitch, I mean, we're introduced to Stitch very quickly. As you say, this whole sequence really is to introduce Stitch and where he comes from. I didn't expect Stitch this close to the beginning of the film. As you say, this could be a film that begins with Lilo and sets up her her life for 20 minutes and then at that point Stitch crashes in and it all goes crazy. No, we get Stitch from the beginning and I was so hooked into Stitch, like, straight away. My line in my notes here is, oh my god, he's so good straight away. <laughs> Him, like, crawling around in his little uh, glass orb and, like, you get that character immediately and that incredible disparity between them saying all the things he can do he can see in the dark he can lift three thousand times his weight and he's just like a little odd bod in a jar is outstanding they do such a good job of establishing that he's evil (laughs) (laughs) like there's a beautiful moment later when lilo does a drawing of him and she colours up to about 70% of him and colours it red and says, this is your bad and this is the level that it's at and this is your good and it's really just his ears. But what's so funny about that and like what is essential for a storytelling narrative device is like by the time he gets to Earth, the audience needs to know more than Lilo and Nani know. They need to know that he's evil, that he's a little monster, that he can do more than he's letting on, etc., etc., etc. So that there's entertainment and friction in the discovery process for the sisters. And by having that opener of like letting out all of the stuff he can do, great storytelling device, like just get it out there, get it going, make it economical. But when he then gets to Earth and he's looking at trying to destroy San Francisco and he's relating to monster (laughs) movies as being aspirational, if you've ever had a puppy or been in the proximity of a toddler, there's something that, like, (laughs) Stitch is very much the amalgamation of having a newborn and have, or like having a toddler specifically, because newborns are just like sleeping and pooping, but having a toddler and having a puppy, that mania and chaos and just like destructive energy is exactly what Stitch is. And if you've ever been in either one of those situations, there's so much stuff. Like when he first gets into the house and he's like, and like rips something apart and then goes to a cutlery drawer and just tips it out for no reason. And you're like, yes, like this is, <laughs> I, you know, you've lived it, you know, it's just illogical and destructive and chaos for no reason. Just before we move on from the outer space opening, I am going to put myself forward, Sam, and say I think in the very opening scene of this film, I think there is a Disneyversity legend. We haven't had one for a while because these films haven't necessarily had Disneyversity legends. So, Sam, I know you love Pleakley and Gantu and all of those guys, but there is one extra guy in this opening scene that I was just drawn to immediately, and you're nodding, and I'm wondering if you're thinking the same one as me. There is a character on this council that is like a spacesuit, 
and in the helmet of the spacesuit is just a squid, just a smiley squid <laughs> swimming around. And I was like, what is that guy's story? He needs his own spin-off. Please tell me he returns in spin-off media. I mean, you're a Star Wars guy, right? So you understand the appeal yeah. of, let's just show a room full of freaks and then we'll get to them <laughs> oh, later. Yeah. Someone will decide to write their stories. Especially if one of them is a squid and you could feasibly call them a Mon Calamari. Super into it. <laughs> Absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole load of goofy guys on the council, but that is definitely a standout. It will be one of the briefest appearances of a Disney Versity legend ever up there with the goofy flamingo from Aladdin, but I will allow you to toot <laughs> the legend horn if you so wish. Can we go for, yeah, the, the squid head, I don't know if he has an official name, he if somebody in, on a Disney wiki has that, but yes, okay, officially inducted into the Disney Versity legends canon is... Squid Guy from the Galactic Federation of Oddbods. There we go. Feels good. I haven't done that in a while. Okay. After this incredible intergalactic opener, we then are grounded into Lilo's world. And I just briefly want to touch on the opening credits because they are such a vibe. After you've had this bombastic funny, strange space set opener to then be not just on Earth, but in Hawaii and with surfing and these beautiful Hawaiian choral chants. I was just so struck by the opening sequence. It's just a really wonderful contrast to the opening 10 minutes of the film. And after having this chaos to get this even just little glimmer of peace of this like peaceful, beautiful place was immediately swept into that. Yeah, it is really beautiful and serene and colourful and atmospheric. But then also the fact that this is Lilo trying to feed a sandwich to a fish because the fish controls the weather. That is perfect Lilo and Stitch. Like, there's the beauty of the environment and the music and all of that. And then there's also the the weird undercurrent of, this is just a strange girl. It's honestly, I think, one of my favourite sequences of the film. Maybe that and the surfing sequence, to be honest, because I love the Mm. sort of... Stitch wanting to be part of the family and that whole montage that comes later is is so beautiful and so great for a character reason but just the the hard pivot from space to this place where he's been and you know you're about to be exiled and like exile you think like dune you know you're the planet arrakis and some dusty (laughs) sandworms and stuff but this is just like when the music comes in and just the way it's shot. And I know they spent years and years and years in house at Disney pioneering the technology to be able to animate and illustrate water and create water on screen in a way that looked realistic and beautiful and everything. And that so much of that has to do with the the way the light works and the liquid and everything, um, especially once you have more computer capabilities, but I'm a, such a 2D hand-drawn animation girly and there's something about the way the water is captured and the way that environment is captured in the 2D hand-drawn style that I just love so much. The colours, the culture, her running straight into the rehearsal and then bashing a chick. It's just like, it's just... <laughs> Iconic? Are we going to say iconic? Iconic. <laughs> She's a legend for that. Uh, I don't know. Like, you guys probably aren't on Polynesian Twitter as much as I, but, like, that's a meme in Polynesian Twitter spaces. It's like <laughs> the Lilo with her on top and the fist onto the redhead is an right. image that is often memed or used as, like, a single image so to communicate. Funny. In the same way the Arthur <laughs> fist, you know, is used yeah. to communicate yes. something. So Just 
instantly she jumps her. Like, without a second's thought. Well, she says, like, you're weird or something, and just, like, snap, she is on top of that girl, pounding seven shades out of her. In her defence, I would like to say the implication is clear that there's been a long-going cycle of bullying. Oh, definitely. When she later rolls up on the tricycles, (laughs) and she's got her little posse, and they position her like a gang, which is, like, exactly how it feels. Yeah. Yeah, no, ew. It's like, it's it's clear that, you know, she had it coming. She absolutely (laughs) had it coming. She deserves it. But again, it's like, it's just, this is our Disney little girl (laughs) kid protagonist. And within minutes of meeting her, she is throwing hands. It's excellent. Little girls in Disney movie have really been rubbing me the wrong way on this podcast because our (laughs) chief little girls have been... Penny from The Rescuers, oh. Jenny from Oliver and Company. Oh. I guess we've got, like, uh, Wendy and Alice. Like, those are good characters. But, like, of late, those, like, 70s and 80s little girl protagonists are so sickly sweet and so devoid of personality. But even something like Frozen, you know, do you want to build a yeah. snowman? It is very saccharine and sweet and passive with the little girls. And little girls are monsters, you know? They're evil geniuses. <laughs> and just, like, give me that evil genius representation. Here she's scrapping. She's talking about the sandwich and the fish. And if I give Pudge tuna, I'd be an abomination. Excellent line. She pretends that a bug laid eggs in her doll's ears. She is just sort like genuinely weird. You know, we've talked about like Emperor's New Groove, Hercules, and like Shrek from DreamWorks. These are like anarchic movies. This feels like the direction in which Disney is moving is like anarchy and some fourth wall stuff and some pop culture stuff. But this is like so much deeper than that. Like it is weird. It is strange. Lilo is weird. Stitch is weird. They are unusual people, right? It's not just like cliche. You know, I love Hercules. I love New Groove. I love Shrek. But especially now that we've seen so many movies hitting those same kind of pop culture references like rock song notes, this is just weirder on a way that feels more childish as well. Like, this is what some kids are like. We all know kids like this. Many of us were kids like this. Possibly people in the call were kids like this. Yeah, I love Lilo. She's perfect. And Lilo and Stitch, the weird in the same way and they have to be and that's what it's about but we'll get these like parallel intros where their weirdness is reflecting each other one fantastic detail that i've not noticed before is stitch bites gantu on the hand and then gantu says does this look infected to you to one of his boys and then when lilo bites myrtle on the hand she says to the girls like does this look infected to you and it's just like the exact same lines like they're in completely different situations with completely different stakes but people see them in the same way like they are both perceived as as like wrong and strange and like aberrations and it, it's a great way of drawing these connections between the characters before they meet i want to come back to that idea because that runs through so much of the film and i think it's such a strong thread through this but before we get there for me this was a discovery of like who lilo is as a character because again coming to this not knowing the story there is a version of this you could imagine where it's like, hey, Lilo is this good girl who has a very ordered life and then Stitch crashes into that ordered life and messes things up and how are they going to, you know, contrast her neatness and his chaos and that is absolutely not it. And I was really struck by the almost like E.T. feeling of this and not just because it's like kid befriends alien but like kid having messy life at home has to kind of wrangle with that 
but has escapism through these alien adventures that are actually mirroring the feelings that she has with such a strong thread in this. And I just wasn't really prepared for there to be an almost like kitchen sink character drama about these two sisters having to like keep things together. The social workers are on their back. Lilo doesn't understand that this could all go seriously wrong and she could be taken away from her sister. Nanny is trying to keep it all together. We see as audience members that, yeah, we love Lilo and her chaos, but she is doing stuff that we can't condone that is going to, you know, cause difficulties for Nani and for their family situation that Lilo is not going to understand the consequences of that. It was so complex and nuanced. And I just thought that was really surprising and beautiful. And that, as you say, in contrast to the other like little girls from Disney movies, what that brings to the whole film, these complicated, messy, imperfect characters, feels like such a huge shift. But also the relationship between the sisters. Like, If you think of from the opening credits onwards, that whole chunk is your first sort of introduction to the world, right? Because they move you. It's very propulsive. I love an intro that takes you somewhere, you know. You're going from the beach up onto the sand, up into the dance recital, up into Nani's life and her stresses and pressures. But it's also the relationship between the sisters once they get home. The way sisters fight is such a specific, terrifying, like violent, emotionally and often physically (laughs) violent thing that I was just, it's hard to capture accurately in pop culture and accurately, especially within the prism of a Disney film like this and the way when they're home and they're fighting and it's so horrible. And then you know, hard cut a few hours later and they're sweet and nice to each other. I'm like, this is made by someone who has sisters <laughs> or has seen sisters at work <laughs> because it really is. It's like, that's your worst enemy in the world and your best friend. It's your soulmate and your foe. Like it's can be those two things simultaneously at all time. Those two truths are, are held within each other. It feels so real. It feels so human in a way that interpersonal relationships in Disney movies so rarely do because you go from the heightened relationships of like the Renaissance fairy tale musicals right to like Emperor's New Groove, which just doesn't care, which is not really about relationships. There's like nods to the friendship between these characters, but it's mainly just a loony tune. And, you know, when we watched especially Hercules, but I think also Emperor's New Groove, we were talking about how these movies don't really tug on the heartstrings in the same way, or like they kind of gesture to it, but don't really achieve it. And that's one thing that the Ben didn't love about Hercules. And this movie strikes that balance so well. And it's Lilo and Nani, and Lilo and Nani could be the movie, I swear, because it's like a subgenre of kitchen sink drama movies about unsuitable but, like, dedicated guardians and the threat of having the kids taken away by social services. Like, two of my favourite movies of the last five or whatever years are Florida Project and Rocks, and, you know, that is the, the central relationship in both of those movies. In one case, it's a sister in one case, it's a, a very young mother. And that tension between like wanting to do the best for the kid, but n- genuinely not knowing if you can, and genuinely not knowing whether they actually would be better off if they were taken away, but obviously the kid does not want to be. That's the last thing the kid wants. And it's like, what is best for them? What's best for me? What's best for her? That relationship and how it plays out in those movies always really really gets to me and i think that you could have made an animated disney movie just about that storyline on hawaii and the fact that stitch 
not only fits perfectly alongside that without distracting from it, but augments it and like just adds to those things and mirrors them in such an effective way is like a borderline miracle. Like the way they marry this wacky comedy with that like really heartfelt and realistic and human storyline. I don't think there's any Disney movies that really achieve that before or since. I'm not sure like how high up my overall rankings this is going to fall when we get there, but like that is like a one-off in this studio's history, I think. Yeah, I think there's a couple of lines specifically from Lilo that really just get you in the heart straight away when she's talking to Nani uh, after their argument when they've calmed down. She says things like, because she seems to be in her own world so much, but you get these lines that then pierce through of like, oh no, she is aware of the situation as well. That she says to her sister, we're a broken family, aren't we? And when she says, I like you better as a sister than a mom, it's like, these are really deeply upsetting things to hear. And that's like painful for both of them. Like Nani doesn't want to be in that situation either where she's having to be a mum as well as a sister. Like, that's heartbreaking for her. And then they set all of that up, and then literally in the background you see Stitch crashing in, and you're like, what What is happening now? We've gone from outer space to beautiful Hawaii to, like, difficult family situation at home. Now those two worlds are melding. But as you say, part of the beauty of this film is these characters who couldn't be more different and also are viewed in very similar ways and have to kind of form some union together and balance out each other's anarchy into something that is going to work as a family unit is a wonderful thing. What do you guys make of that relationship between Lilo and Stitch, the ways they mirror each other, the things that they give to each other over the course of the film, the lessons maybe that they learn from each other, but also just the shenanigans they get up to, because there's an incredible amount of shenanigans through the course of the film. Well, it's so fascinating because until the introduction of Stitch, Lilo is Stitch. You know what I mean? Like for all intents and purposes, she is the Stitch in Nani's life. And then you actually get Stitch and it's like Stitch becomes this vessel for her to see who she is and how she is in Nani's world because Stitch becomes her in Lilo's world. So it's like this little echo of stories, like a babushka doll, if you will, of like different Mm big picture and small picture versions of the same micro story but it's also like testament to um again like Disney really they do spend time developing textually the relationships between characters and how that works and they're not afraid to cut things out and leave things on the floor and I have always really respected that about them is like you can't make great art without having to sacrifice great art and the tricky thing when you have an A and a B plot like that, if, if Stitch is the A plot and Lilo and Nani are the B plot, is you have to care as much about the B plot as you do the A. And by the end of this film, they merge. They're almost interchangeable. And it's so, so hard to do that. And they make it feel so naturalistic and easy that it's really like kudos to them, kudos to everybody who worked on this in a story capacity to make sure that balance always felt right. And then so that when the merging happens, because that's the end goal, is that all your plots converge by the conclusion, that it feels really earned. And I just love that about the film and that it feels really earned in a way, again, that's still timely. Like, this is a very punctual film. Like, you know, everybody talks about the 90-minute movie and how obsessed they are with 90-minute movies in an era where everything's, you know, 
bloody eight episodes or 13 episodes or four hours in the case of Scorsese. It's like, it's really hard (laughs) to overstate how much an 82 minute film or whatever just really can get it done. You don't feel like this needs to go on for another hour. They get it done and they get out and they don't overstay their welcome. We get Stitch really convincingly by the end of this movie to a point where this ball of chaos can speak the lines which just sum up this movie's things and it's going to make you cry almost more than anything any other character says when he says, and I will not do the voice because I want to do it justice <laughs> and I've embarrassed myself enough. Uh, this is my family. I found it on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. Oh, it's good. Like, oh, oh, God. It killed me because even the line, it's still good, is this whole thing where it's like the idea of good and bad is a theme that's echoing throughout the film. It's the thing they're talking about in the very yeah. first like galactic you know, meeting. And then it's the thing she draws in the illustration of like the difference between yes. good and bad and understanding that everything good has a bit of bad and everything bad has a bit of good and it's the balance of the two that make us who we are it's just oh my god dead the fact that they're able to like efficiently get stitch to a point where he can believably convincingly deliver that is so impressive because you've got like he can always speak but he only reveals himself as being able to form full sentences like towards the back end of the film because he's trying to disguise himself as a dog or a koala or whatever. But the fact that that (laughs) access to dialogue coincides with his increased lucidity as a character, I think is really effective. So he's not running around in the first half of the movie screaming like, I'm going to destroy San Francisco or whatever. He begins to speak when he begins to be good when he begins to like settle into the family and when he has something necessary to express and i think that is why it works so well and again it's the patience of the storytelling it's like after you know the first sort of day of chaos it's him asking her about the ugly duckling book right and sort of seeing himself textually in that which is so beautiful and so sad it absolutely broke my heart the ugly duckling same and like him not knowing like who are his parents is just that idea of he doesn't have parents and neither does lilo anymore but the part where it gets to this is my family and it's broken but it's still good where that really comes through before he actually like verbalizes that feeling it's the surfing montage where you know, Nani spent all day trying so hard to get a job, trying, trying, trying. And Stitch and Lilo are just messing it up at every single moment and opportunity, right? And it ends with the chaos on the beach. And it's David stepping up and being like, hey, I know you're down, but let me cheer you up this way. Like, let us do this activity. And Stitch is the observer throughout that whole sequence of the surfing of the sandcastle building and is trying to do the same activities that they're doing on his own and failing. Like it's not fulfilling him in the same way. So that by the time you get to the end of that sequence, he understands who he is and how he needs to fit into their family and what he can gain from that. So by the time you get to that verbal line, they're telling you at the end, but they show you in the sequence before And it's just, again, the understanding of storytelling to know that not everything needs to be enunciated right in that moment. You can save it for later. You can show it. And it's the starting point because the ending point of that relationship is so fulfilling, but it starts from a point where 
again, I didn't know this going in. Stitch is sticking with Lilo because he's like, if I'm around this kid, I'm not going to get shot. And that <laughs> was a hilarious place to start from of like, he is just manipulating this situation so that he can keep himself safe and not get caught by uh, the Galactic Federation. So that is the reason he's sticking around with Lilo in the first place. And Sam, you described Stitch as a ball of energy. At times he literally is a ball. He can put his feet in his mouth and roll around like a ball, which is just one of the most wonderful things ever. And yet Lilo, I think, Lilo is kind of a chaotic and weird character, but the way that she is animated in this by uh, Andreas Deja, who is one of the all-timers of like 90s and 2000s Disney, she has this like amazing subtlety to some of her movements, which Stitch kind of adopts over the course of the movie. Like, there's an incredible moment of comic animation where she wants to buy Stitch, which ends up being a crucial plot point, but you think it's just a joke. Nani takes two dollars from the person, she gives it back to Lilo, and then Lilo gives it to the person selling the pet license, and she does it in this like really subtle way, just like reaches her hand up very slowly and deliberately pulls it back down, reaches it out again. And and there's so much comedy to be mined from like the subtlety of that animation. Stitch doesn't really have that to start with. He is chaos, he is energy. And then there's this moment, the first like real moment of affinity between those two characters to me is when they come into Nani's bedroom and she's using Stitch as a jukebox to play the Elvis records. Oh my oh. God, I love that part. <laughs> it's so good because it's like, she's literally just woken up. She just, hey, Nani, wake up. And then just like the detail of the animation, they've still got little bags on her eyes because she's like, what? <laughs> and she's just, yeah. Eh! like it's so good and it's those slow deliberate movements that have characterized Lilo's weirdness as opposed to like the anarchic energetic movements that have characterized Stitch's weirdness and it's like they're still both being weird but he's like at her level now they are working in tandem he's staying like a good dog will learn to do and he's allowing her to perform these subtle comic moments brilliantly animated as she opens and closes the mouth and that's where the comedy comes from and I think that is linked to the lucidity that he achieves by the end of the film and he is moving more slowly and deliberately when he's delivering those lines at the end of the movie so that is something that he kind of almost adopts through his affinity with Lilo over the course of the film and Stitch being like an amplifier for records (laughs) I mean it's an amazing thing anyway but one of my favorite cinematic moments this year was watching Evil Dead Rise. I'm talking about Evil Dead again on the podcast, Sam. And there's an amazing moment where the mum has been possessed by the Deadites. The Necronomicon book is actually on vinyl in this one. And there's a moment where she uses her nail and plays the record and she opens her mouth and the sounds of the Necronomicon (laughs) come out through her mouth. And I watched that and I was like, this is one of the coolest, weirdest, most inventive things I've ever seen. Incredible. I've never seen this in a movie before. Turns out it was in Lilo and Stitch. Sure was. Just, just hadn't got there yet. So <laughs> Also, Evil Dead Rice filmed in New Zealand, baby. Not to be yes. like shout at the home country, but... Um, <laughs> no, shout it out. Yeah. <laughs> I saw it with a friend, actually, who is working with Disney on the Moana TV series. So it all comes back full circle. But we were like, hey! You know, everybody in the ill-fated apartment block is Pacifica. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have to touch on the Elvis of it all. I love that Stitch's plan is that if he sticks with Lilo, he doesn't get shot. And Lilo's plan is, I can mould this little alien friend into my own personal Elvis. That is her plan. It works perfectly. 
even having not seen this film, that is something that I generally knew about going in. Just like Elvis Stitch is a thing. And I see why he's been taken into everybody's hearts. Yeah, as we kind of alluded to earlier, it is kind of an odd match. Like, okay, Elvis is strongly associated with Hawaii because of those records, because of that movie. But it is that version of Hawaii through the eyes of like a Caucasian tourist. So it's interesting that they've written this Hawaiian girl who is like obsessed with Elvis, which, I mean, you know, that's certainly possible. It kind of makes sense in a way, like if she's been exposed to this through osmosis, through the tourist industry, through like the blue Hawaiiification of Hawaii as it's been presented to these mainland American tourists. But yeah, it's basically just in there because Chris Sanders likes Elvis. It's a great body of songs, you know? I like listening to those tunes, um, you know, Suspicious Minds, Burn and Love. Suspicious Minds, covered by Gareth Gates only in the UK, for this movie, had Lilo and Stitch in the music no. video, went to number one, the only Disney song to go to number one oh before we don't need to talk about Bruno what? in the UK. Those are the two. We need to talk about Bruno, Gareth Gates, Suspicious Minds. That is bananas. <laughs> that is a bananas factoid. I was like, wait, what are you talking about? That is absolutely nuts. Does Gareth Gates mean anything on your side of the world? I don't even know who that is. Like... <laughs> so he won that before there was the X Factor, before there was Pop Stars the Rivals that Girls Aloud came from, mm. there was Pop Idol. It was like the very first of any of those shows. And the winner of that show was Gareth Gates. It was Gareth Gates versus Will Young. It was a whole thing in this country. And so Gareth Gates covering Suspicious Minds sets this in a very particular time period. That going to number one and being a big deal also puts this in a specific time period. That is wild. But it gets weirder because that single was a double A side, okay? It was Gareth Gates' Suspicious Minds with a Lilo and Stitch music video backed with Will Young no. doing the long and winding road. So it was these two legendary rivals <laughs> coming together. <laughs> It was the Godzilla versus Kong of its day. Uh, <laughs> it was the Godzilla versus Kong of early two thousands British pop. Now you're speaking my language. <laughs> Once you put it through the lens of Godzilla v Kong, I'm back in. Rebecca Hall, I'm invested. Wait, are we all big Godzilla v Kong fans here in this room? Like Sam and I watch this film all the time. It's a big favorite. <laughs> Let me tell you again, not to be like always making it about the Southern Hemisphere, but that was filmed here. And so I was on the set when they were filming Godzilla v Kong. Got to meet Rebecca no. Hall. Got to meet <gasps> the incredible Kaylee Hoddle, who, here we go, Pacifica representation, is Hawaiian and um, plays Gia in the film, is deaf in real life. And Rebecca Hall had learned ASL and so had Alexander Skarsgård, credit to him. But they had both learned ASL to be able to communicate with her throughout the filming. Like Godzilla v Kong's a great film. Genuinely really good. It's so good. It's got that Lilo and Stitch girl and freak thing yeah this this is gonna get out of hand me and ben were texting for hours about this trailer last night like well look stitch is really kong and kaylee hoddle slash gia is really lilo so there you go loop it all back around there you go (laughs) i want to touch on something you said before maria you mentioned the surfing sequence which was one of my absolute favorite sequences in this you can tell from that opening credits sequence that the surfing is going to be an important part of this film just in the vibe just in the world that it's creating and i love that in this really brief runtime the film creates space for our characters just to go and surf and to be together the animation as you said of the water of the waves is absolutely stunning and to have this like moment of 
calm for all of them and for Stitch to see this family unit that he could be a part of interacting on the water this way. It's just an absolutely incredible, beautiful scene in the film. Yeah, there's something about, like, one of the things that makes this movie special is that it's not racist. <laughs> Even if there isn't, like, necessarily a huge amount of Pacifica people actively credited on the film. But part of that is there are some fundamental things about Pacifica culture that are really understood and displayed and represented in the film. And one of them is the connection to water, the way that we feel that it is an extension of ourselves, an extension of our ancestors, an extension of our life force. It is part of who we are. And especially if you're from Hawaii, where it's like, that's the birthplace of surfing as we know it. It is a place that is, connected and interconnected through water all of the different Hawaii is not one place it's lots of different islands that are connected through water through people's understanding of how to travel and traverse that space by understanding currents understanding storms understanding connections understanding tides understanding surf and just having that moment between all of them, I thought was was really beautiful. The way the water is drawn is really stunning. But even um, there's a, a bit where Lilo in particular dives under a wave and you see the movement of surf so beautifully. So like when you duck dive under a wave like that, the wave pushes in above you and then it's like an absence of volume. So there's like immense volume and then an absence of it so it's you know like the shape right. of a wave and the way that rolls and just the way that they were able to demonstrate that from underneath the wave I was really curious about like you know did somebody jump out there with like a, a waterproof camera because you know keeping in mind it's like the 90s and 2000s right and film how it looks to dive under a wave like that because if you haven't done it you don't know it and Blue Crush isn't <laughs> It's like quite out yet. So you haven't got all those shots of Kate Bosworth and Michelle Rodriguez and, uh, you know, Coco Ho doing exactly that. But it was really beautiful to watch. And it really did such a great job of recreating visually how that feels in a way that um, is just another aspect of the film that I really appreciate. And Stitch is scared of water. Right. You know, one of the many things that separates them from this family, from this community, who, as you say, have this really close connection to the water and like Nani and David really specifically, he can't connect to that. And that's what he has to overcome in this sequence where he first starts to really feel like part of this family where this disjointed family really starts to come together. And in a very literal sense, the joy on Stitch's face when he joins them on the board, with that little element of fear, but the joy on his face is so enchanting. And the idea of, like, if I stick with these two people in an environment that is treacherous to me, they will keep me safe. If I stay on the board with these two, I am safe. If we stick together, we're safe. That is such a lovely little encapsulation of the emotions that this film is getting at. The other thing I really loved in the animation is there's a shot that's like half above the water, half under the water. And again, just to do that in animation and how the lens would be affected if you were shooting that in live action. I just loved seeing all of that stuff. It's wonderful. Anyway, I can feel Sam absolutely itching to talk about all the odd bod side characters in this film. You've got Jumba, you've got Agent Pleakley, Gantu, the Grand Councilwoman. Take your pick, Sam. Who's standing out to you? I mean, a Grand Councilwoman, she's she's fine. She does the job. <laughs> Gantu, he's cool. He's a cool design. Excellent voice performance. Kevin Michael Richardson, one of the best. 
But, man, Jumbo and Pleatley, those are my guys. And this is, I realised watching this movie again, so I was preparing for the podcast. What I always do when I do these, because I want to watch the movie itself close to the record, but I've got to watch all the sequels as well to prepare, because my brain tells me to. So I watched the three sequels and lots of episodes of the TV show, which I also grew up watching on the TV to prepare for this. And Jumbo and Pleatley are the MVPs of those spin-offs. They're excellent in this film, but in those sequels and spin-offs, Jumbo and Pleakley are so central, because they are, I will say this, they are mostly good. The Lilo and Stitch spin-off stuff, there's loads of it. It sets a very high bar for, for Disney sequels, like the crap that we've had to sit through, that I've had to sit through <laughs> on this podcast. Like the Lilo and Stitch stuff is enjoyable. Jumbo and Pleakley become, you get a sense of it in like the montage of photographs that ends this film. They become so central to this found family idea, right? You get the idea in this movie that they are joined and that's what, you know, it's it's the principle of, of Ohana being extended even to these characters who were the antagonists. But um, they are what makes this family really unique and strange. Because like, okay, we've got like sister, boyfriend, little sister and like pet and then we've got these two freaks who just live with us and hang out with us and like i love them in this movie i love their relationship they are so funny i think jumba in particular embodies this idea that you were talking about before maria about like the relationship between good and bad and what that means because he is basically openly evil he identifies as evil he's always talking about how evil he is even after he's decided to be a good guy he's just obsessed with the abstract idea of evil and yet he does have like this kind heart when he switches sides, it's for no reason at all. Stitch is like, no, we've got to go and rescue Lilo, and he's got him in handcuffs there, and for no reason he's like, all right, okay, yeah, whatever, that sounds just as fun as, as the other stuff we were doing. So he's a great embodiment of that concept and like a different angle on that concept from Stitch. But, like, Pleakley is an icon. Like, I adore Pleakley. I think he's, he's lovely, he's so sweet, but, like, seriously pleakley is whatever like disney's first openly lgbt character we've had a million of them we've had examples before in this podcast of characters that can really easily be read as queer pleakley is a gender fluid character and it was before that term was in widespread use he never identify him as such in the film but like in this he decides to dress up as an earth woman in disguise as jumba and then later on we see him like trying on his wig and stuff and then and talking about how it makes him feel pretty and stuff like that which to me is like lovely we're seeing this character from outside of the earth gender ecosystem finding his place within that in real time in this movie and this sounds like i'm, I'm being facetious this sounds like a joke it's not in the lulu and stitch spin-off media they are all but explicitly presented as a couple as a queer couple jumbo and pleakley like they are in disguise they call themselves when they have to be in disguise like uncle jumbo and auntie pleakley pleakley's always referring to himself as auntie pleakley he's always dressing in like different like feminine clothing like he is a gender fluid character they are a queer couple by the time we get to leroy and stitch they're being like really explicit about it like all but outright saying it the conversations they're having make that really clear and that implicit but inherent queerness that those two characters hold and Pleakley in particular it just adds to the texture of that found family so much and they are like real standout characters in all those sequels and they bring a really important element to what this found family is because it's they don't have parents she's being raised by a sister 
but it's there's still like a kind of heterosexual relationship at the center of this family like it's not necessarily a subversive family structure outside of the fact that they have this freaky alien dog but when you put Jumbo and Pleakley into the mix, it feels a lot more subversive and a lot more unique and really is a testament to the extent to which we're willing to invest in this idea of Ohana as like, this is a family that extends to anybody who we love, including these guys and whatever their relationship or identity happens to be. I'm a huge Jumbo and Pleakley fan. Well, just to comment on the shift that you mentioned um, and how you felt like it came out of nowhere... I think that turn is threaded through the movie in a quite subtle way, but it's just that so much of the focus is on this literal evil monster stitch turning good rather than necessarily these two weirdos who are like off to the side. You're like baby otter type situation happening over there. I love the queer shout out because I think that's definitely been the pop culture read on those two characters too, because the longer they're trying to follow him around and they're following him around Hawaii and they're following him around the town, the more they visually start to integrate into the community and the culture. And at first it's just like, it's a camera and it's a hat and it's a shirt and then it's a wig and then it's lipstick. And then they're like drinking cocktails. They're having the food. Every time you cut back to them, they're visually more and more part of the local town's community whether that's through food or whether that's through costume and even to the point where uh he asks about his parents i read that as there being a partially sympathetic response that's not what you were designed for you were you know merely designed to destroy like that whole conversation and the way that's spoken about is the longer they're exposed to the human beings in that town and that community the more it starts to rub off on them as well so when it does get to the shift at least on a rewatch I had been anticipating it not for plot reasons because I knew it was coming but because of all the little visual cues where they're starting to be more and more part of the environment and you know it's different because our focus is on Stitch but it didn't feel completely left out of left field for me like I think it did for you in your explanation. Yeah, oh, I think you definitely are given enough information to like anticipate it from the film and I think definitely that conversation that he has with Stitch about his like parenthood there is almost like an unspoken thing because like he says you don't have a parent but like he is his parent Mm. and he does and again especially in the sequels he does have that kind of relationship almost a parental relationship that develops between them so i don't think it's like a massively shocking left turn in the film i just think it's very interesting and funny how quickly Jumba switches from this like mask off moment where it's like oh we're being fired I can do whatever the hell I want I'm gonna tear this place down to get him to just like oh okay I just think it speaks more to like how fascinating he is as a character that he can hold these two ideas in his head simultaneously like I do care about you and I will do this thing that you want I will save this girl for you but also like I I like to destroy things I'm evil I am happy to like just cause chaos I think to an extent you do see him like develop as he starts to integrate with Pleakley into Earth culture but I also think all of this has been in him the whole time and he's just kind of like cosplaying evil because he finds it fun And I think that's one of the cool things about him. Yeah, I absolutely loved that about the end of the film, that just everybody's mates, they're all family. Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind, even if they're a vague aunt and uncle from out of space who drop in every so often. And they rebuild the house, and we get that lovely little snapshot of all of their photos, all the adventures they get to, and meeting up on holidays. and, And, of course, 
going to Graceland. They had to go to Graceland. And Sam, I think the only thing more 2000s than the Gareth Gates cover of Suspicious Minds is the like 2000s teen pop version of I Can't Help Falling in Love With You that ends this film by I didn't even know who this band were the A-teens had you heard of them (laughs) I don't know if I could be absolutely wrong about this people will tweet about it if I am they might not exist outside of this song I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if you told me that but it's it's really fun for me to hear because can't help falling in love with you is the anthem of Sunderland Association Football Club a club that I nominally support <laughs> to the point where I don't watch the games, but I do get extremely upset when we lose. So that song has a lot of meaning for me. And honestly, to hear that beautiful, heartwarming rendition of it by the A-teens was really quite something. Maria, do you have thoughts on the pop cover of I Just Can't Help Falling In Love With You? Nah, I mean, like, you guys could be speaking another language <laughs> to me. Like, these are these are respectfully not my people. <laughs> <laughs> But that's fine, we're still Ohana. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ohana means who are these people? <laughs> Ordinarily, that would bring us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and see what changed along the way. But this is an original story, so are there any things from this film that were cut out or was experiment 626 always intended to be exactly like this sam so i've mentioned a couple of deleted scenes there's a few others and like ideas like stitch was originally going to be the leader of a gang of aliens but they were removed interestingly because roy disney suggested that this made him feel too grown up and you like stitch more when he comes across as like more of a child more of a toddler There's a deleted scene where Stitch is responsible for killing Pudge the Fish, who, I think Loki, Disney Versity legend, by the way, controls the weather, but Stitch is responsible for killing Pudge the Fish, which teaches him about, like, mortality and the negative consequences of his violence, and Lilo gets really upset. But the main thing that we need to talk about with Discarded is the original climax for this film. Okay. So, at the end of the movie, they take uh, Jumba's ship, and chase after Gantu, who has Lilo captive, uh, through like a canyon and through like a volcanic area. And originally, instead of taking Jumba's ship, they went to an airport and they hijacked a Boeing. They hijacked a plane, a passenger plane, and they chased after Gantu's ship in this plane, flying through Honolulu and crashing into buildings on the way. And then 9 11 happened. And they couldn't use that anymore. Uh. So the story goes that 9-11 happened. Thomas Schumacher got a phone call from Chris Sanders. And Chris Sanders was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And Schumacher was like, I know, like, what does this mean? You know, for the country, for the world. And Sanders was like, no, what are we going to do about this 15 minute sequence (laughs) now a movie? (laughs) Where we drive a plane through a major metropolitan area. And uh, yeah, they had to very, very quickly basically traced over it so the animation that we see loads of it is identical it's just being traced and relocated right. so that's why i always found it weird that jumba's ship is so much bigger than gantu's ship even though gantu was a big boy and that's because it was originally going to be a boeing 747 so they replaced the buildings with like the canyon even the bit where they knock the ice cream out of the tourist's hand he was originally going to be walking through the streets of honolulu right. uh, and, and they relocated it to the beach And you can tell 
the new scenes that they've animated because Jumba's head is far too big. <laughs> I think they must have done it quite quickly, but there's a couple of scenes where this happens in the scene where he's smashing up the house as well, which also had to be redone because it was originally considered to be too violent. There's a couple of scenes where Jumba's <laughs> head is like massively too big for his body, and those are the scenes that they've had to animate at the last minute to uh, replace the now extremely touchy plain hijacking sequence. That is fascinating. That never even crossed my mind. But yeah, that is some quick thinking to turn this around and to reframe that sequence and still give us an ending that feels really organic to me to this film. So we clearly all love this movie, but let's get to the reviews. What did critics say at the time? Please tell me the critics at the time loved this film. Yeah, it was positive. It was a positive reception. Uh, Let's see what we've got. Roger Ebert gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, saying it's one of the most charming feature-length cartoons of recent years, which I feel is underselling it a little bit. The LA Times says that it has an unleashed, subversive sense of humour that's less corporate and more uninhibited than any non-Pixar Disney film has been in time out of mind. So we've got, you know, people comparing it positively to... I feel like that incorporates, like, a lot of the latter Renaissance films as well, after they started to be seen as a bit more formulaic. And even the negative reviews had a lot of praise for something that we haven't really talked about, which is the watercolour backgrounds, because that's something that they had not done at Disney since the 1940s, was genuine watercolour backgrounds. So there'd been, like, gouache watercolour style backgrounds there had been digital watercolour style backgrounds in the post caps era but actual watercolour was almost unheard of because of how unforgiving it is as a medium so it took a lot of convincing from like the art team to get Disney to come round to committing to watercolour and and all the reviews really praised that element but uh, there were a couple of negatives Entertainment Weekly for example said that the story is witless and oddly defanged. What? Stitch gets discovered by Lilo, a temperamental Hawaiian girl who's the wine of whiny brats. No. I think that is... This writer has issues. He said, these two become friends in theory only. There's so little connection between them. And it's just one of those, like, what movie were you watching? I can sense Maria wanting to use the Lilo and redheaded girl <laughs> meme right about now. <laughs> I just like whiny brats. Like, Disney is populated with actual whiny brats. Like, Absolutely. This kid has no parents. <laughs> like... <laughs> You know what I mean? Like her parents have literally just died in a car accident. Of all the things they're like whining about, she's about to be taken off her only surviving family member by child services. Like, I don't know, man, that's some pretty justifiable whining (laughs) to me. Like, shit. Well, I don't know what this person's life was like, but far out. That's so dark. Yeah, cut Lilo some slack, man. Truly. So, generally, the reviews were good. What about the box office? Did this make money? It did pretty well. It made 148 million domestic. It made 273 million worldwide. This is in American dollars. It made about $100 million more than The Emperor's New Groove in Atlantis, but it was $70 million short of Dinosaur. Oof. It's only the fourth biggest gross of what we're calling the wilderness years. It was beaten by Chicken Little of all goddamn things, but it will easily be the most profitable film of this era, like overall, right? When all is said and done, when you count the spin-offs, when you count the merchandise, the ungodly mm. amount of merchandise, the value of Stitch and apparently Angel and Leroy as characters alone, this will have made so much more money as a franchise than any of the movies we're looking at at the minute. 
That's the stuff I really, and there aren't stats on this and they don't release them and they're not widely available. So it is what it is. I mean, you just have to make your peace with it. But that's the kind of information that I really want to see is like, what is the tale on these things? Because some would say that Lilo and Stitch is as popular now as it was in 2002, maybe even more so, right? (laughs) Which is insane to say. I don't know if you could say that about The Little Mermaid, which literally had a live action adaptation this year, right? So maybe it's just like perspective and the things and people and stories you're exposed to. But I am really fascinated because Hercules, it was one of those films that I feel like was a big hit at the time and had a big sort of merch window of about five years and has dropped off in a way that Hercules doesn't necessarily have a huge lasting legacy outside of really the vase singing, (laughs) outside of some banger songs (laughs) and like people thinking that he's hot. There is, isn't really like a big pop cultural footprint in the way that Lilo and Stitch has had. And so I really would be fascinated about what is the tale on something like this and how much this film it really feels like more of a grower rather than a shower and is so interesting because it came out within 12 months of Monsters Inc and the two films I think pair so nicely together besides having this like collage of like little freaks to quote unquote (laughs) you guys (laughs) but even this idea of found family it's like if you swap out Lilo and Nani for like Mike and Sully and Stitch is Boo, it's like it's a very sort of similar structure oh. of like the three creatures. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just find that really interesting that this is this is the time for the little freaks to shine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I just taught a class on Monsters, Inc. So I kind of watched those Stop. two movies back to back. And yeah, I've had a real kind of 2001, 2002 little freaky Disney kind of time. Yeah, they do pair excellently. Also, I've got to say, if we're talking, you know, I know you guys will get onto it about like the legacy media and stuff, but Monsters, Inc. also still very ever present in the discourse has been memed as much as Lilo and Stitch has been memed, but also has some brilliant sequels like Monsters University to me. I love more than Monsters, Inc. Wow. I think is so great about teaching people the idea of like, your pathways to success doesn't have to be college. You can achieve the things you want without necessarily having to go through the tertiary system. And then there was a really brilliant animated series called Monsters at Work that was released right in the height of the pandemic, where not only do you have the original voice actors coming back and like some great animation, but they introduce a bunch of expanded characters and expanded like mechanisms within the whole scare universe that I thought was really brilliant as well. Quick disclaimer, no, you cannot achieve your dreams without going to university. Please continue to go to university. (laughs) Please continue to keep me employed. (sighs) Maybe if your dream is to be a lecturer in animation or to be an animator, maybe go to Sam's course. Yeah, I need to check out Monsters at Work. I have not seen that. That's good. Let's get on to our thoughts on the film. Maria, you go first. What star rating are you giving this? I have a sneaking suspicion. I know where you're landing. (laughs) Well, anybody who follows me on Letterboxd knows this is a hard five out of five for me. (laughs) I don't know if you guys do a 10 out of 10 or a four out of four or whatever your eBay system is, but I think five is always, once you start extrapolating into 10, it starts getting too in the weeds, but it's a five out of five for me. It's a perfect film. I kind of define my five 
out of fives as no notes really is like, is there anything that could be improved? Is it 20 minutes too long or, you know, whatever. If I don't have a single suggestion for what could be better or what could be improved, that's a five stars for me. And this is just, it would be in my top five Disney films of all time. And it's not five, you know, it's really right up there for me with my favorites, Princess and the Frog, Moana, even stuff like Tangled. It's just incredible. I love it so much. It's such a weird little freak of a film. (laughs) It's such an unusual oddity of the time. And when they were really trying different stuff, but it's also such a film that has so much heart. It has so much emotion to it. And I, um, you know, I showed you guys off mic that I have a piece of concept art from Lilo and Stitch hanging on my wall that was given to me by the incredibly talented Phil Noto, who's better known as an incredible comic book artist and has worked on everything you could ever possibly imagine. But uh, we were on a pop culture convention tour together and a friend of mine was mentioning that I was a massive Lilo and Stitch fan. And he's like, oh yeah, I worked on that. And I was like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? Like, tell me everything. And had worked on the character design and the concept art. And anyway, by the end of the tour, he gave me a, a Stitch drawing that he had done. Which is now framed. But when he gave it to me, you know, those tour schedules are really hard and hectic and you have to deal with a lot of people all the time. And for people who have to be uh, professional extroverts, personal introverts like me, it is very like draining. So you're emotionally tired, you're wrecked by the end of the tour. He gives me this drawing and I do this outward cry thing, (laughs) just like where your tears are just like, you know, horizontally out of your face. Yes. Poor sweet Jewish man just like had to do a runner and just be like, oh my God. But this film just means so much to me. Like it really does. I have so many Lilo and Stitch pieces of merchandise outside of this daggy t-shirt, but you know, plushies or earrings or whatever. And when you meet a Lilo and Stitch fan, it is one of those things. Like the girlies who get it, get it. It's just such a special movie to me. I'm so glad that I got to be here to talk about it with you guys because it's just, it's one of one, to quote Beyonce. <laughs> one of one, the only one. The only one, number one. <laughs> Sam, where are you going for this Starwise? It's strong, isn't it? I'm reevaluating because I'm, I'm, you know, long time letterbox guy. I've had all of these movies rated and ranked on letterbox like years before we got them on the podcast. Some of them very occasionally I've gone back and adjusted and inflated ratings or, or took some stars away, moved them around in my rankings. I think that might have to happen here. I think partly because I've been so immersed in it. I have lived and breathed Lilo and Stitch because there was so much research needed for The Last and Legacy for this one, watching like all the sequels and everything. That trip to Disneyland and just the hype building up to, to you eventually watching this movie, mm-hmm. Ben. I'm in a real Lilo and Stitch place right now. I'm thinking of going... I think my current letterbox rating for it is four, and I think it's going to be a, definitely a four and a half after this, and we'll see. What I want to know is, I've got a sneaking suspicion where this might end on the like end of season ranking of like the Wilderness Years movies. I think it might be right up there, but the competition is not stiff. I think... I'm really interested to see where I put this on like my eventual ranking of the entire catalogue because I think it's going to be higher than it was going into this episode. Yeah, I am with your revised ranking. I think I'm a four and a half for me from a first watch. Wow, from a first watch too. We've had decades yeah. to sit with this, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just everything really hit for me. Like I said, as soon as I laid eyes on Stitch, I was like, I get it. I get why the world loves this guy. <laughs> 
but it was the Lilo and Nani stuff was such a surprise and how touching that was and how complex and unusual that story was for a Disney film really hit me. So all of those things tied together and it being in, as you say, this anarchic, weird era of Disney where they're breaking a lot of their own rules. They are in a post-Shrek world and just going like, we need to tear up the rule book a bit and refigure what we're doing and feeling that energy in this film whilst at the same time it's being like quiet and touching in this family story really really into it i cannot wait to watch this again already and i'm fascinated to see how i'd rank this against some of the disney classics because it is so much its own thing but yeah can absolutely see why this film is a huge deal. I'm so thrilled that at last, after like three years, I've finally been allowed to watch it. So I'm part of the club. Ohana. We are the family. We're broken, but we're good. Um, <laughs> Just quickly on the thing that you said about like, you see Stitch and you just, oh, okay, I mm. get it. There is an art to understanding that things need to be cute and ugly in equal measure completely to really get that balance and it's really fascinating because seeing how many people worked on this that go on to do how many dragon and how much toothless resembles stitch in its character design like i know it doesn't seem obvious because it's like a blue alien and a dragon but the face the ears the eye ratio even the way that toothless behaves is like this formula is like originated never duplicated it's really really hard to recreate something that people connect with visually in such a specific way like they're able to capture with stitch and you know, as for the film overall, like sometimes things are classics for a reason. Sometimes things earn and deserve the hype. And I really do feel like this is one of them. You're speaking my language. I'm surrounded by Grogu's. I have a Babu Frick <laughs> up on my shelves there. Love Babu Frick. The really underrated <laughs> of yes. the ugly Star Wars creatures. I was like, where is the Babu Frick merch? Right. Where is that? Galaxy's Edge. Galaxy's Edge, you can buy a Babu Frick, an animatronic Babu Frick that goes, hey, when you turn it on. So, To be honest, I haven't got a spare 20 grand to get over <laughs> there and check that out. But, you know, even stuff like the Fantastic Beasts movies, like objectively terrible. But in those films, all of the little creatures, like the little pickets and the, I can't remember the little echidna thing that steals silver and stuff. Adorable, cute, obsessed. Like it's really, those movies, I think 70% of their actual success is because they have some really cute slash ugly creatures in there that people could attach their affections to right we've teased it long enough now it's finally time for lasting legacy because a disney movie is never just a disney movie and in the world of straight to dvd sequels theme parks live action remakes crossover movies and more there's a whole universe for each character and that could not be more true of lilo and stitch to the extent there are so many movies, there's a show, we've touched a little bit on some of the theme park stuff, there is so much to discuss that we have to hand over to ourselves in the future. You're about to hear Sam and I discuss all of this stuff in depth, we have to let Maria go in a minute, so we are going to come back, you are about to hear us discuss this stuff now, but for now, here's to future Sam and future Ben. <laughs> Why, thank you so much, past Ben. It is future Ben, although as you're listening to this, this is still in the past. <laughs> anyway, who cares what time it is? Time has no meaning. And it is time for Lasting Legacy. So, Sam, what is the Lasting Legacy? 
of Lilo and Stitch. I mean, this one has a huge legacy. Even not having seen this film before, I know that there are tons of spin-off films. There's a TV show. We've touched on the merch, which I'm sure we'll touch on again. This movie is everywhere. This is a big, lasting legacy. I would say, if we're going to talk just about, like, animation... I think there have been more minutes of animation produced in the Lilo and Stitch franchise than in any other Disney franchise, like spinning off of one of these animated classics, right? Because we've had a lot of movies that went on to have TV shows, movies that went on to have sequels, but this movie has had three TV shows, three sequels. So there is so much going on, and of course the original movie as well. So like... Lilo and Stitch just casts a far bigger shadow than anything else. And as we get into what these shows are, I think you'll realise how they can like maintain this universe and these characters, because it, it does make sense. So, I actually don't know where to start, because the first sequel media to this movie was Stitch the Movie in 2003. So Stitch the Movie comes before Lilo and Stitch 2 Stitch has a glitch. That's correct. It was made before Lilo and Stitch 2 Stitch has a glitch. But Lilo and Stitch 2 Stitch has a glitch (laughs) seems to be set chronologically prior to Stitch the Movie. Okay, so are we going... This is like a Star Wars question as well. Are we going production order or are we going chronological order? For the I films. think we go chronological order in terms of, like, the story. Okay, yeah, guide me through this story. I just think that's the easiest way to do it. So, Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch has a glitch, is mm-hmm. extremely low stakes compared to what the rest of this franchise would be. Uh, I think it was just basically made by a different team to the people who made Stitch the movie, which is its own thing and leads into the TV show, which leads into another movie. This is, compared to that Leviathan of law, this is a Leviathan, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> this is, if is a fairly like low stakes, self-contained adventure. It's all about Lilo wanting to win the local hula competition and live up to Amam's legacy, because it turns out that Amam was a, a legendary hula dancer. So Lilo wants to like figure out the perfect dance. Her arc is all about finding the perfect dance to beat. And it's like Myrtle and the other the mean girls from the hula school that she's got to take on. Meanwhile, Stitch gets a glitch. <laughs> <laughs> As its title suggests, lives yeah. up to the title. Stitch has got a glitch, which basically means that he gets a bit too raggy sometimes. He gets he, he just boots off. I'm imagining this a bit like Loki season two, where Loki is like time slipping and he's physically like in space. Kind of, but it's more of a mental thing. He just right. flies off the handle. So a big plot point in this movie is the good bad chart that Lilo does. Right. Where it's yep. like Stitch and it's like filling up with good and bad. So they bring that back and that becomes really central and it's all about Stitch trying to get his his bad all the way down. But oh. because he's got this glitch, it keeps breaking out and he, he freaks out and he messes things up and he can't really control it. So genuinely like a movie about Stitch's mental health basically yeah. and about him trying to you know restrain aspects of himself so that other people can succeed in what they're trying to do. He doesn't want to ruin the hula practice with his episodes. Does it have a resolution where it's like, it's okay, he doesn't have to be all good all the time. Nobody is all good all the time. And just because sometimes he, he can do things that aren't the best, that doesn't mean that he's a bad little guy. I hope that's part of the meaning of this, and it's not just a, no, he he manages to succeed in being good all the time, because that's an unrealistic expectation for anyone. I mean, what actually happens is 
Lilo gets really sick of Stitch because he's messing up the whole hula practice situation and she just says, look, I'm done with you. Ooh, really? Yeah. I can't imagine her being so invested in the hula that she turns her back on Stitch. She's really invested in the hula. She wants to live up to her mother. And there is like a subplot of um, it kind of brings back that Nani-Lilo relationship and, and like, you know, Nani kind of having to realise that she wants to be a mother to Lilo, but she can't ever be the mother and Lilo still has this like absent figure of their biological mother in her life. So some of these themes from the movie are still there, although further below the surface than in the film, I think. What happens ultimately is Stitch glitches out a bit too hard and dies. Oh no, what? Bring it back! Bring it back! So, so Stitch dies about two minutes before the end of, of Lilo and Stitch 2. Stitch gets a glitch. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, is this it? Is this it for Stitch? But luckily, Lilo brings him back to life with the power of love or something. I thought you were going to say the power of hula. I was like, how good was that dance? <laughs> they all do a big hula at the end. They all oh, like, oh, we're, we're mates now. We're going to do a big hula. It's all good. But um, yeah, they, they really do. Like Stitch, they play quite straight, you know, for a Disney movie. It's like, you don't think Stitch is going to die. You know, you've got all this other Stitch content. But yeah, that's Lilo and Stitch 2. Stitch has a glitch. It's fine. It's whatever. It looks pretty good as far as these things go. Like it's night and day next to the Hunchback in Notre Dame 2 and all of that. And it captures that visual flavor of the movie, but there's nothing too exciting happening. So it's still got a bit of the watercolor situation going on. Yeah, I would imagine digitally or gouache or something. I don't think they'll have actually been working with watercolor here, but it's aiming for that visual aesthetic. And you know, one thing that I learned in watching all of these is I'm having a really good time with a lot of these sequels because it's just nice to be in the world. You know, I think partly because they suggest where these characters' lives are going to go and that they're going to stay together and have an adventures and like Jumbo and Pleakley are going to get involved in the family and stuff. You want to see where that goes so you've got a lot of goodwill going into these things. As long as they're reasonably funny and they're not like really doing anything offensive and like crapping all over the, the legacy of the original film, I'm just happy to be in Hawaii with my guys. So, Lilo and Stitch 2, Stitch Has a Glitch, was made after Stitch the Movie, but it seems to be set before because Stitch the Movie just comes with it, this enormous explosion of, of lore and incident and characters, which are not referenced <laughs> in Stitch Has a Glitch at all. Right. So, Stitch the Movie, I don't know why it's called Stitch the Movie, apart from the fact that Stitch was the big character, maybe they already had Stitch Has a Glitch in production, so they didn't want to step on its toes by calling it Lilo and Stitch 2, so it's called Stitch the Movie, but it is a Lilo and Stitch story. Like, it's not like Lilo has been sidelined or anything. Okay, so they still hold, like, equal weighting in that partnership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this one does have noticeably worse animation, and that's because this is really the pilot for the TV show. Oh, okay. So I assume it was made on a TV show budget. But it's not quite a standalone movie. It does feel like what it is, which is set up for this bigger thing that's going to come after. But we're not talking about, like, Atlantis and all of that and those, like, it's three episodes of a TV show smushed together. It is, like, a feature-length narrative. And the plot starts when Captain Gantu, who has been disgraced, who has had to leave the Federation and is now looking for work as basically muscle, is hired by a hamster-like alien called Dr. Hamsterveal. Oh, amazing. Into it. Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Hamsterveal is Jumba's old partner, and he funded the experiments that Jumba carried out, basically. And Hamsterveal is coming for what's his, right? He's like, I, I paid for these experiments. These belong to me by rights. I am coming for Stitch, Experiment 626. 
And I'm also coming for experiments 1 through 625. Oh, so it confirms the existence of 625 other experiments pre-Stitch? Yeah, so Jumba has all of these experiments stored in tiny balls, a bit like Pokemon, right? All of these monsters (laughs) in little balls, and he keeps them in, like, a gacha machine, and it, like, spits out whatever experiment you need, depending on the situation, so the experiments have all got different abilities, many of them are elemental, a lot of them have, like, psychic abilities. It's Pokemon, (laughs) is what it is. I mean, again, this sounds great, I'm into that. Yep, so... You've got to catch them all. They all look a little bit like Stitch. Some of them are, like, gigantic. I think one of them's, like, microscopic. It's like a bacteria. So you've got all of these different types of experiment designed for different types of evil. And Jumba has them all. So Gantu kidnaps Jumba to try and get them back to find out where the experiments are. Lilo and Stitch, they go to the machine and they free an electric-type Pokemon, an electric-type experiment <laughs> to try and get him back. So they have this guy called Sparky who's, like, Stitch but yellow and he's lightning... And he's, he's like, zapping around everywhere. It's Pikachu Stitch. Yeah, it's Pikachu Stitch. It's Stikachu. Pikastitch. Stitch. <laughs> so Lilo, Stitch, and Sparky have yeah. to go and save Jumba from Gantu, who wants to torture him for information on these experiments on behalf of Dr. Hamsterville. Okay? Nice. And in the escape, as they free Jumba, all of the experiments somehow break loose. All the experiments, all the little pellets, the little balls, are scattered around the islands, are scattered around Hawaii. And that sets up Lilo and Stitch the series, because now they have to catch them all. So in every episode, they find a new experiment, they tame a new experiment. They all wake up evil, because that's what they were designed to be. So they Mm. have to find them, and then train them, and then find them a home on Hawaii where they can do good. And when is Lilo finding the time to do this? She's supposed to be in school. She's got a whole new sideline in hula dancing. So she is the Ash Ketchum. She's got to catch them all, be the very best like no one ever was, and make sure that none of these experiments destroy the world. Yeah. So, I mean, there isn't 625 episodes of the series, but by the end of it, they do claim that they've found all 625 of them. Some episodes do more than one experiment per episode. And they also say, I'm pretty sure later on, they say like, oh, it's been years. It's been like two years that it's taken us to catch all these experiments. And it's like, well, Lilo, you look identical. You know, as like a little girl, (laughs) you should look a little bit older by now, but no. So Lilo and Stitch the series ran from 2003 to 2006. And it's, yeah, it's them trying to catch the experiments. Gantu's trying to stop them. Gantu has a sidekick, and that's Experiment 625, who has all of the powers of Stitch, but he's too lazy to use them, and all he wants to do is make sandwiches. Amazing. Is it, and that's not Leroy. That's not the red That's one. not Leroy. Don't get ahead of yourself. Okay. That is okay, not okay. Leroy. <laughs> that is Ruben, okay? Because <laughs> that's sandwiches. So Ruben is not yeah. Leroy. They are separate. Okay. And... This is where we meet Angel, the pink girl Stitch. So Angel pops up in one of the episodes of the series. She has the ability to sing a special song, and it can either, if you are evil, it will turn you good, and if you are good, it will turn you evil. Oh, that's a good little twist. Yeah. So initially, Ruben and Gantu are using Angel to turn all of the experiments that Lilo's already turned good to turn them evil. And, you know, she's, is she going to turn Stitch evil? Is she not? Stitch is, is in love with her because she's pink and uh, <laughs> whatever. And uh, eventually, obviously, they turn her good and she comes back to the side of the angels. Ha ha. 
So there's all of these experiments running around. Also, something that really interested me, and I don't know if this will interest you, is there's quite a few, in season two especially, there's quite a few crossovers. Okay. I want to know, actually, have you seen any of these shows? Do you know who any of these characters are? Because you're in Hawaii, right? So all of the... If you've got a character from a different Disney show, they can just go on a vacation to Hawaii and help Lilo catch an experiment. So the gang from Recess turn up. You know Recess? Yeah, I used to watch Recess. All right, okay. Was it on ITV back in the day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, CITV. Uh, Okay, this is good. I mean, Recess, huge show. Yeah, yeah. That was huge when I was a kid. All the gang are there. TJ Detweiler, Ashley Spinelli, Gretchen Grundler, Gus Griswold. Vince LaSalle, and of course, who can forget Mikey Bloomberg? <laughs> I love you just pulled those straight off the top of the dome. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, it's true, it's true. So they're all there to catch an experiment. Uh, Kim Possible? Was, oh, was it Randall? Was it the bully <laughs> who had his little arms out in front? Randall Weems, yeah, that's him. Well, there's a yeah. I think that's right, Randall Weems. Kim Possible, you ever watch Kim Possible? Nah, that was after my time. Okay, so Kim Possible's there with their Ron Stoppable, her sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> And Rufus, his little, he's got a pet naked mole rat called Rufus, and Jumba mistakes Rufus for an experiment. That's quite funny. Oh, that's solid. The Proud Family? No, again, I've heard of that because I think I've just seen it pop up on the Disney Plus homepage. Yeah, there's been a reboot of it quite recently on Disney right. Plus. Uh, so the Proud Family are there, Penny Proud. Uh, and Jake Long, American Dragon? No, I haven't heard of that. Okay. Well, there we go. Two out of four. <laughs> Did you watch any of them other than Recess? Yeah, all of them, yeah, definitely. A a little bit less Jake Long. I think that was a little bit after my time, but I caught bits of it. But yeah, definitely Kim Possible and the Proud Family. They were pretty big. On CITV, on Dig It, that was their uh, Disney block in the morning. It was called Dig It. Fern Cotton presented it for a bit, I think. Okay, right, now it's time for what you've been waiting for, Leroy and Stitch, 2006. Leroy and Stitch, new player has entered the game. So Leroy and Stitch is the finale of the show, but unlike Stitch the movie, this does have like movie, not movie quality, but like a higher quality animation than the TV show. So this is set after all of the experiments have been captured and Stitch, Jumba and Pleakley are rewarded with their dream jobs in the Galactic Alliance. So like Stitch is going to be the captain of the army and Pleakley is going to run the Earth Studies course at the university and Jumba is given like his own lab where he can do whatever he wants. So they've all got their dream jobs but that means they have to leave behind Lilo, they have to leave behind Earth and that's very sad. And Jumba and Pleakley have to leave each other behind as well and (gasps) There's lots of, like, their conversations that they have, like, long distance in this about, like, missing each other, but getting, like, kind of passive-aggressive with each other. It's it's very queer-coded. Like, I swear to oh. God, they are a couple. So that's very sad. Dr. Hamsterveil... <laughs> He's back. back. He never went away. Dr. Hamsterveil (laughs) is is core. He is like central to this whole thing. And Dr. Hamsterveil captures Jumba and he forces him to create an evil, more powerful version of Stitch called Leroy. Leroy is red. He is Stitch, but he's red. And then the clone and army of Leroy's and there's this enormous climactic battle in like a football stadium between hundreds of Leroy clones and all 626 experiments 
and oh, it's pretty cool. And, and that sounds huge. Gantu and Ruben, they kind of like turn the backs on Hamsterville and they team up with Lilo and Stitch as well. You know, Angel is there helping out. It's all your guys. It's pretty epic. Like, honestly, I, I enjoyed Leroy and Stitch. <laughs> Stitch has a glitch and, and Stitch the movie where I am, I am liking this. I'm liking being back with the characters. I watched a few episodes of the TV show. I watched the Angel episodes and the crossover episodes. And I never really got bored of it, you know? But Leroy and Stitch, I was like, this is good. This might be the best one. This might be the best Disney sequel, honestly. Wow. What's it getting on your letterboxed? Oh, I'd probably like a, a three at the absolute most. I have rated it. <laughs> As I think most of these are between like half a star and two and a half stars. I think Le- a few of them, Leroy and Stitch and uh, maybe The Lion King, one and a half Timon and Pumba movie. Those are the ones that are up there in that like, this is three stars. I would recommend that people watch this. I wouldn't recommend you watch Leroy and Stitch if you haven't seen at least Stitch the movie. Okay. But... I would say you don't have to watch Stitch Has a Glitch. If you just watch Stitch the movie and Leroy and Stitch, I think you'll have a pretty good time if you want to hang out with these characters a bit more. And they're all on Disney+. Plus. Does it feel analogous that Leroy is like the Knuckles to Stitch's Sonic? I'm just thinking one of them's mm. blue, one of them's red. Leroy doesn't turn good, though. Leroy gets locked up in jail with Hamsterville at the end. So he's, really? he's rotten to the core, yeah. Oof. He's a bad apple. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ruben is kind of like Knuckles because he turns good, but also he is uh, he's not useful. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But the Lilo and Stitch, like, oh, well, I haven't finished, by the way, but so far, all the stuff that we've seen is, uh, this is good, this is good media. Okay. Like, especially for kids, but, like, even for me watching it, it was like, oh, this is fun. And, like, Jumba and Pleatly, especially, you get so much more of these in the spin-offs. There is also 86 episodes of an anime. Oh, which is simply called Stitch, and that's produced by Madhouse, who are one of the greatest anime studios of all time. Like, all of Satoshi Kon's films are with Madhouse, for example. Really? Yeah, a lot of Mamoru Hosoda's early stuff is with them. They make just killer stuff. They make a lot of stuff, and a lot of it is kind of made. <laughs> Can't believe I just said made. <laughs> oh, God. I didn't like the feeling of that in my mouth. A lot of it is fine, but some of the best, and a lot of the best anime movies and shows of all time have come out of Madhouse. I have not watched any of Stitch the anime, but I do know that he lives in Japan with a girl called Yuna instead of Lilo. So I think it's it's like a reboot, but then there's also some references to the fact that he might have used to live with Lilo. So it's kind of like playing it safe a little bit in terms of how it connects to that original show. And there is also a Chinese series called Stitch and I, where he lives in China with a girl called I. So Stitch is international. We knew that. We saw him all over Paris. But like in East Asia especially, Stitch is gigantic. So Japan and China both have their own Stitch TV shows as well. That's really interesting. And are they available to watch here? Then I don't think I've seen those on Disney+. Plus. They're not on Disney+. Plus. I'm sure you'll be able to find them online. I think at least the anime was broadcast in the States, I think, and, and dubbed and stuff like that. So you should be able to find decent copies of, of some of this. And you mentioned the parks there. It's come up while we're talking with Maria about how intensely everywhere stitches in those asian parks especially but also when we went to disneyland paris we saw so many stitch toys leroy toys angel toys 
There was one day we were walking into the park and there was a huge queue, a huge gathering of people. And we were like, what What are those people waiting for? And it was to get a picture with Stitch. It was like the biggest queue of the day was to get a photo with somebody in a big old Stitch costume. So there was a big presence for Stitch in the parks. But it doesn't strike me that there's like a Stitch ride. Get on the Lilo and Stitch ride and you're up in the Galactic Federation or you're surfing around in Hawaii. Has anything like that ever existed or been mooted? Well, in Paris, there is something called Stitch's Encounter. And they also have that in Hong Kong, Shanghai and Tokyo. So those East Asian parks where you would expect to find a lot of Stitch hype. And that is a live show where you can interact with a real-time animated Stitch. And this is done more famously with Crush from Finding Nemo in the American parks. It's gone quite viral on TikTok lately, some like Crush interactions, Turtle Talk, the call it. Yeah, I've seen a few of those online. It's crazy how they kind of animate it so quickly to the improvised voice performance. It's it's mad. Yeah, like improvising with kids asking funny questions and giving funny answers and the turtle is giving surprisingly adept movements that go vaguely with what he's saying. I don't know how they do that. I mean, there'll be some pre-rendered stuff, but a lot of it is like digital puppetry, they call it. So it's like you're manipulating this 3D construct in, in real time. And yeah, there is a Stitch one of those. We didn't go on that in Paris because it was there was only like four shows a day, so you had to time it and we just couldn't be bothered with the, uh, the bureaucracy of Stitch Encounter. <laughs> Leave that to the pleakleys of the world. We're jumbers. We just want to jump in. <laughs> so there is, or there was, a more conventional Stitch ride, and that's in Orlando in Tomorrowland. Or there was a more conventional Stitch ride, I should say, and that was called Stitch's Great Escape. And this originated as a ride called Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter. Okay, so this was not a licensed, like Ridley Scott alien ride. <laughs> it was a generic alien that you would encounter. Although I think George Lucas was involved in the development of the concept at one point, so it does have Hollywood pedigree. Oh, that's cool. So you would like sit around in a dark room, and then the lights would go off. There's like an alien in a cage, and then the lights would go off, and the aliens escaped, and it starts attacking you. And, and it's it was apparently absolutely terrifying. One of the scariest Disney attractions of all time, and was shut down in part at least because it was deemed too scary for kids and everyone was just staying away from it so it's amazing they retooled it but kept it almost identical as stitch's great escape so the premise is the guests have been hired as prison guards assigned to stop stitch from escaping it's almost it's like a prequel to the movie right it's like while he's in captivity uh, before he escapes in the film so stitch is in the middle of the room in a cage he gets out the cage he shorts out all the lights and then in the dark, he, like, attacks the guests. So you're sitting in chairs that are rigged for, like, Stitch to jump at your back and, like, crawl over your shoulders and scratch you on the head and stuff like that. And in the climax, most notoriously of all, he does a big old burrito-smelling fart. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a ride where you can get farted on by Stitch. <laughs> and why did they get rid of that? <laughs> so that, that went in 2018. But today, you and I... We're in a charity shop in Battersea, and we found yep. this gigantic, like, extra-large tie-dye t-shirt with Stitch's Great Escape on it. And it was Stitch in front of the Disney World castle, eating a Mickey Mouse ice cream, 
and absolutely appalling Mickey and Donald and Goofy and Pluto who were like looking on in disgust. You know, just like those classic Lilo and Stitch advertisements. So I bought the t-shirt. <laughs> you did. You ran up to me. You were like, look at this. And I was like, <gasps> it was incredible. It is ludicrously faded it has been through the wash a thousand times the print is clinging on by a thread and it looks amazing Uh, you're gonna have to wait until the summer basically until it's t-shirt weather again but the next six months you're just gonna be sitting there waiting to wear the stitches great escape t-shirt we went round a few shops in battersea today immediately you found that t-shirt in a charity shop we went into just a couple of other like gifts and toy shops we saw stitch stuff everywhere i don't know if it's just because we're doing this podcast but like i couldn't help but notice how ever present stitch was just everywhere in the year 2023 he is not going away so we have done animation we have done theme parks there are a bunch of video games i've played some of them Uh, i have not played lilo and stitch pinball which is not a real pinball table it's a pinball video game which i love pinball I'm not sure about pinball video games, unless it's the Windows 2000, like, pre-install space-themed pinball, which yeah. is great. Spent hours on that. Need the table in my hands. Oh, Pokemon pinball on the Game Boy Color, actually. Okay, maybe I could <laughs> give Lilo and Stitch pinball a go. There is Lilo and Stitch Hawaiian Adventure. There is Lilo and Stitch Trouble in Paradise, which I had on the PlayStation 1. And that's a Crash Bandicoot clone, which is so fine. Whatever, I'll take that. It's not great, but it's like platforming, 3D, side-scrolling, whatever. Fantastic. It basically follows the plot of the film, except you've got to fight like giant rock monsters every so often because it's a video game and we need bosses. And in order to make Lilo playable, so you play as Stitch and obviously you can mess people up with his super strength and everything. But in order to make Lilo playable, they give her, I feel quite uncomfortable about this, voodoo powers. Mm, Yeah. yeah. I think based on the one moment in the movie where she's making like voodoo dolls of the mean girls from school, they're like, oh, okay, we'll give her voodoo powers, which I'm sure they probably weren't thinking too deep about it. But just giving this one random character of color voodoo powers, just because she's like tiny moment in the movie, it feels a little bit dodgy. Okay, whatever. There was Stitch Experiment 626, which was a prequel to the movie on the PlayStation 2, which I played as well. So that's kind of like an action shooter kind of thing. There's Lilo and Stitch Hamster Veal Havoc. Oh, here he is again. (laughs) He's back. (laughs) Dr. Hamster Veal, you can't get rid of him. There was Stitch Jam, a rhythm game starring Stitch and Angel. There was Stitch Super Chef which is a Chinese tile-matching mobile game. Oh, for a second I thought it was going to be, like, overcooked, but with Stitch in the kitchen. Nah, that'd be good. And there is Stitch Now, a Chinese deck-building mobile game. And there is also Bomberman Stitch Edition, which is, I think, Bomberman with Stitch. Nice. Oh, healthy selection then. I like that you've got classic platformers, you've got mobile games that are loosely Stitch themes... Bomberman with Stitch. Are you a Bomberman guy? Yeah, I quite like Bomberman. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Bomberman. Yeah, nothing against them. So there is also the live-action remake of Lilo and Stitch, which I'm sure could be great, but I'm sure it could also be nightmarish. It basically all hinges on how they decide to render and animate the Stitch character. Uh, directed by Dean Fleischer-Camp, who made Marcel the Shell, which we love. So we're, we're quite excited for that, I think, tentatively. There's not really any very well-known actors have been cast in it. They're mostly casting unknowns or, you know, lesser-known performers as the Hawaiian characters. But Billy Magnuson is Pleakley. 
Zach Galifianakis is Jumba and Courtney B. Vance is Cobra Bubbles. So I think that's pretty strong. I don't mind that at all. But it's not the first live-action Disney movie to feature Lilo and Stitch. Ooh. Okay, that's intriguing. There was, in 2022, a Disney Plus original movie called Better Nate Than Ever. Do you see that? Do you catch Better Nate Than Ever? No, that's a mouthful of a title. Better Nate Than Ever. Okay. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it. Better Nate Than Never would mean basically exactly the same thing, but would be much easier <laughs> to say. <laughs> it's Better Nate Than... And then you've got to take a pause. Ever. Ever. And this was a movie about a kid called Nate who moves to the Big Apple to audition for a Broadway musical. He's betting it all. He's got big dreams. He wants to be on the stage, and he is auditioning for the role of Stitch in a Broadway musical adaptation of Lilo and Stitch. No. So there isn't a stage show for this, but in the days since we recorded the rest of the episode, I have seen the My Neighbor Totoro play, which is one of the most ludicrously enchanting things I've ever seen, and was full of stuff that I just never even knew was physically possible in a theatre production. If they can apply that technology to a Lilo and Stitch stage show, sign me up, I will be there. So presumably they wrote songs for this, right? Like, you must have to perform some... Presumably they made a costume for this. They must have done the bare minimum to, like, give us the sense that Nate is in a Stitch musical or auditioning for a Stitch musical. So I kind of want to watch this, but I'm going to have to just try and find some clips online because, like all the best Disney Plus original movies, this movie is no longer on Disney Plus. Oh, it got Artemis fouled. Yeah. It's been removed, scrubbed from the service unceremoniously. So we're going to have to track that down. I've got to watch at least all of the Stitch-related clips that there are. But yeah, that's pretty much it for The Last Legacy of Lilo and Stitch. But we know this isn't the end. We've got a lot more to come. We've got the live-action movie, presumably some live-action TV shows, live-action Stitch has a live-action glitch, and all of that to look forward to, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, that is a gigantic lasting legacy. Oh, the live-action film in Dean Fleischer camp we trust. He did an incredible job with Marcel the Shell. But good luck to him. That is a huge, huge task to take on. Anyway, I think we'd better throw back to our past selves. Here's to you, Ben from the past. From Ben of the future. Or as you're listening to this, another Ben of the past. What a fascinating discussion. And that is it for this week's class. Maria, have you enjoyed your time in the hallowed halls of Disneyversity? I have loved it. Like, I can't tell you what a delight it is to get a little request about, hey, we're doing a podcast about Lilo and Stitch. I'm like, say less! <laughs> this is, um, you know, Disney is one of the defining brands of my lifetime, you know? They mean as much to me as as DC and Marvel comic books. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for having me. And it's just so wonderful to speak to two people, one who's a literal scholar in this and one who got to have the beauty of watching Lilo and Stitch for the first time. Like, you know, those people who are like, oh my God, you haven't seen such and such. I always think that's like such a crappy response because the things you love, who wouldn't want the opportunity to watch it again for yeah. the first time and experience the joy of that for the first time. So if there's ever something that I love that somebody hasn't seen, I'm immediately like, 
I'm so excited for you to watch this. Yeah. And I'm so excited that you got to watch and experience this for the first time. Oh, and we are thrilled to have you with us on this episode. It's been so much fun and your insights and your love for this film has been absolutely joyous. You're welcomed in the halls of Disneyversity anytime. Thank you so much for joining us. It's Thank been a total you. Blast. If you get to Princess and the Frog, get me back. That's my <laughs> all-time favourite. And where can people find you online? Where can people find your stuff? Uh, so I have books out and stuff. So you can find those. Just like, you know, Google the name and author and there's a bunch of books. There's 11 novels out there. So like pick and choose your poison. But uh, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Letterboxd. Those are my two sort of main places that I exist. I'm also on the site previously known as Twitter. And yeah, just look up my name, Maria Lewis. That's me. That's where you find me. And I have two audio documentaries you can check out. One is about the origin of superheroes and where they come from. It's called The Phantom Never Dies, about the very first caped crusader, a la The Phantom. And the other one is called Josie and the Podcats with my best mate Blake Howard of One Heat Minute Productions. And we dive into the 2001 cult film, but also the legacy of Archie Comics and the little fingerprints of that throughout pop culture history. And where can people find those? However you listen to podcasts, babe, like Spotify, Pocket Cast, like whatever your chosen medium is, it's it's out there. There are also article versions of each episode as well. So um, for the audio impaired, you can find written versions as well. Incredible. Now, the next seminar in the Wilderness Years is going to be Treasure Planet, another film I've never seen, which I'm really excited to get into. But with Christmas not that far away, the next thing you're going to hear from us it's going to be another festive special. Sam, we've already done a Christmas Carol in Mickey's Christmas Carol, and we've already done a Christmas Carol in the Muppet Christmas Carol, so what are we going to do this year? Is there a third Christmas Carol, loosely themed around Disney, with a freaky <laughs> Robert Zemeckis actor playing all the same roles and it's all hellish CGI? Are we, are we really going to do that? Look, it's Christmas Carol, man. There's the past, there's the present, and there's the future. And I think we can all agree that the visual aesthetic of the 2009 Robert Zemeckis movie, A Christmas Carol, is a vision of the future. We'll have to do it. Okay, then. So if you're watching along with us, if you dare, watch Robert Zemeckis' 2009 A Christmas Carol, and we'll have that wrapped into the tree just in time for Christmas. And then in the new year, we'll be blasting straight off to Treasure Planet. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll deliver you your very own Experiment 626 to keep at home. Be warned, he's vile and foul and flawed, but also cute and fluffy. For now, it's goodbye from Maria. On my spaceship, off I go. Let me grab the longboard. I'm out to meet David and Nani and Lilo. Oh, that sounds idyllic. It's goodbye from Sam. Good. Bye. Oh god, it's horrible, Ooh. I can't do it. Goodbye, normal <laughs> goodbye. You gotta let it go. Let it go. <laughs> and a normal goodbye from me. Oh, what do I have to live for now, Sam? I've seen Lilo and Stitch. Please tell me there are more delights to come. I mean, not for a good minute, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Diversity.